to Time Travelling Teeth, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor, Joe and the boys of Unit as they once again do battle with the Master. We were discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and give you our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on the story. So to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, Paddington, will you take us through our season finale? I will indeed, and we will see if John Pertwee can avoid the season three curse. Mm, well, at we'll least see. the season three curse, at least according to Time Travelling Team. You know? <laughs> 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 cool. Episode one. As the volcano rages in the distance, the Doctor wakes up on a couch in the middle of a Grecian-style temple. He notices a large crystalline mound pulsed with light when suddenly he hears the Master's voice welcoming him. He looks up and sees a giant version of his old rival staring down at him and laughing maniacally. The Master then disappears in a flash of lightning as ash and soot begin to fill the temple. Doctor calls out for Joe and then wakes up on his couch in his lab at Unit HQ to find her kneeling beside him with a cup of tea. He distractedly thanks her for it despite not touching it and then goes over to his work desk where he makes vague comments about preparing for the Master. He then asks her to gather any reports of any seismic or volcanic activity in the world, but she reveals that he already asked her that information last night. She gathers some of the local papers she collected and informs him of the volcanic activity in the Thera Islands off the coast of Greece. He asks if there were any reports of any crystals in the area, and when Joe asks him what he means, he tells her that he saw a large trident-shaped crystal in his dream. Elsewhere, at the Newton Research Institute, the master, posing as a Greek scientist named Professor Thaskeles, is preparing a demonstration involving a sample of quartz and some technical equipment. He goes to meet the head of the Research Grants Committee and leaves the final preparations for the demonstration to his two assistants, Root and Stu. Root is frustrated by her superior's chauvinistic attitude, but carries on with the preparations. At the office of the Institute Director, Mr. Percival, the master is confronted over the fact that he has no records in academia. He admits his deception, but then hypnotizes the director into obeying him and vouching for his work when asked about it. Back at Unit HQ, Yates brings a map showing the Thera Islands, but the doctor says that he was simply having a nightmare and that they should forget about things. However, he becomes more interested when Joe says that one of the papers she read stated the islands were the remains of the mythical land of Atlantis. He looks at the map, interrupting the others as they are talking about the mythology of the lost metropolis, and orders Joe to contact the brigadier. She gets through to him and hands the phone over to the doctor, who orders the confused brigadier to put out a global warning for the master, revealing his dream to be his evidence in the issue. The brigadier arrives at the lab and informs the doctor that Unit has made capture of the master their A1 priority, and then says he needs hard evidence to pursue, otherwise they would be ridiculed. He then tells the doctor that they are late for their appointment at the Newton Institute, where they have been invited to be observers. The doctor says that he is far too busy, and he also stops Joe from going, saying he needs her help. Joe asks what they are going to see, and the Brigadier says that they were going to see a demonstration of a revolutionary new process called TOM-TIT, which the Doctor explains stands for Transmission of Matter Through Interstitial Time. The Brigadier then tells Yates that he will be joining him instead, but Yates says that he can't go as he is the duty officer for the day. Just then, Benton arrives to say goodbye before leaving on a 48-hour pass, but he is ordered by the Brigadier that he will be going to the institution instead. Meanwhile, Root and Stu have finished preparing for the demonstration, but Stu, sensing his colleague's frustration with the master's attitude, convinces her to do a test run themselves. 
In his lab, the doctor is putting the finishing touches on a device he calls a time sensor, which is capable of detecting any disturbances in the time field. Joe says that he can use it as a TARDIS sniffer router, and the doctor decides to give it a test run by activating his own TARDIS. The device works, and Joe makes a note of the readings on it. The doctor comes up to check on the readings, but as he does so, the device activates again, which he assumes to be the master's TARDIS. However, it is actually the test run of the Tom Tit device that is activating it. The test run is a success, as the device manages to transport a vase from one room to another, but the device begins to overload and builds towards a power surge. As Root and Stu try to avert disaster, the quartz crystal in the receiving machine glows brightly, so much so that it startles a window cleaner who is observing the demonstration, causing him to fall slowly off the ladder to the ground below. The master is alerted to the test run when he hears the dongs from the Institute clock tower slowing down. He makes his way back to the lab, spotting the body of the window cleaner, which he ignores, and interrupts Root and Stu as they celebrate. He berates Root for potentially causing severe damage, but Stu says that he was the one that convinced her to do it. Root, however, says that she will take full responsibility and suggests that they should discuss it with Director Percival. The Master quickly changes his tune and apologises, saying that he needs their help for the main demonstration. Root then tells him about the feedback, and while he is examining the readout, Stu points out that the quartz is still glowing. The Master says the machine drew power from outside of time, and they will need to build a time vector filter to contain it. He leaves the task to them whilst he goes to have lunch with the Grants Committee. However, he is startled when Stu says that they are arriving, accompanied by a unit jeep. The Master tells him that he has changed his mind and that Root can go to the lunch whilst he builds the filter. Outside, the Brigadier finds the body of the window cleaner and confirms that he is alive. Dr. Cook, the chairman of the Grants Committee, instructs the Brigadier to arrange for him to be taken to the hospital before heading inside. In the countryside, the Doctor and Joe are driving around in the area they manage to narrow down the time disturbance to. Joe points out that the time sensor is working again, and with the new bearings they manage to pinpoint the location to the Newton Institute, and they make their way there as as the Doctor realises that the Master is most likely behind the Tom Tit machine. At that moment, Roos has explained the process to everyone, but Benton seems to be the only one to grasp the concept. The master enters wearing a full radiation suit under the pretense of going to assist Stu in case of a fault, but in actuality to avoid being recognised, and they begin their demonstration. However, the power output is too much and Stu calls for them to shut off the transfer machine. However, the master increases the power and calls out for Kronos to arrive. Episode 2 Root begs the master to turn off the device, but he quietly slips away as everyone is distracted by Stu's screams from inside the testing room. Outside, the doctor and Joe arrive, and they hear the sound of the bell slowing down. The doctor tells Joe to follow him, but she remains motionless in the car. Realising that something is wrong with the flow of time, he heads inside, but much slower due to the effects of the machine, and he narrowly misses the master who is hiding around the corner. He enters the lab and tells Root to reverse the polarity of the temporal flow when she says that she can't switch it off. It works and they rush inside to find Stu unconscious and aged 60 years. Joe then arrives, not realising the time delay, and the doctor says that they have arrived just in time. They take him to his room and the doctor says that Stu could have died from the shock of the sudden change had he had been less fit, and they arrange for him to be taken to the hospital later. They discuss the possible reasons for the change, and the Brigadier inadvertently gives the Doctor the answer that time passed differently for Stu in the testing room. Root mentions the Master's alias when talking about the creation of the project, and the Doctor angrily reveals that Tascales is the Greek for Master. Stu suddenly wakes up and begins to ramble about seeing something. 
Despite their protest, the doctor orders everyone to be quiet, and Stu gasps that he saw Kronos before passing out again. The doctor tells Joe to stay with Stu, and tells Ruth to tell him everything about the machine the master built as they make their way to the lab. The doctor tells the brigadier to bring reinforcements to the institute, as well as t- the TARDIS. The brigadier then radios Yates and orders him to bring heavy weaponry, as well as the other requested reinforcements, as soon as possible. As they are preparing to leave, Dr. Cook informs Dr. Director Percival that he will have to launch a full inquiry into the events at the Institute. The brigadier interrupts him and says that he will be taking over the handling of the situation, and also cites a governmental regulation prohibiting Cook from saying anything to his superiors due to the danger posed by the Master. Cook and his aide leave, and the brigadier tells Percival to arrange for the evacuation of all non-essential staff. Percival tries to dispute this, but the brigadier insists and tells him that if the master tries to contact them, then he is to inform him at once. Percival goes back to his office and finds the master waiting for him. He begins to panic, and the master strengthens his hypnotic control over him, telling him to carry on his duties as normal. Meanwhile, the doctor and Root arrive at the lab, which is being guarded by Benton. The doctor investigates the machine in the testing room, and he discovers the quartz crystal is actually the crystal of Kronos. He then explains about the existence of creatures called chronovores, who live outside the boundaries of space-time and feed upon anyone that enters their realm. He tells him that Cronus is the most deadly of them, and is the inspiration for the legendary titan in Greek myth. He reveals that the ancient priests of Atlantis accidentally drew Cronus into the real world by using the quartz crystals now in the machine, and he says that the Master is trying to do the same thing in order to use Cronus to conquer the universe. The Doctor then pulls out the readings from the time sensor and says that the machine wouldn't be enough to generate the disturbance detected. After a brief examination of the room, he realises that the Master's TARDIS is in the room disguised as a computer bank. In Percival's office, the Master is trying to work out why the power surge occurred as the time vector filter should have stopped it. These thoughts are echoed by the Doctor in the lab, who tells Benton to keep an eye on the crystal when he turns on the machine. Benton says the crystal is starting to glow and the Doctor asks him to pick it up, assuring him that it's perfectly safe. Benton says that he's unable to move it, and the Doctor realises that the crystal isn't actually there, but is still stuck in Atlantis in its original time. In ancient Atlantis, a storm rages outside the Temple of Poseidon as the crystal glows on its pedestal. The High Priest begins to pray to Kronos. Back in the lab, Joe calls down to let them know that Stu is awake again, and the Doctor and Root head back to his room. Stu starts to panic about Kronos coming to kill him, but Joe manages to calm him down. However, it is only temporary as he takes a look at himself in the mirror and falls into despair. The doctor and Root arrive and he pulls himself together to relay his experience as to what happened in the testing room. He said that he felt like his body was on fire as his life force was sucked out of him. He says that he doesn't know exactly how he knew Cronus was present, but the doctor says it is due to the race memory that all sentient life has. The doctor promises that he will do what he can to help him get back to normal. Meanwhile, the master gets Percival to call Benton to leave the lab, but Benton is wary of leaving without orders from the brigadier. He gives Benton a number to his secondary line, and the master impersonates the brigadier's voice when Benton calls true and orders him to come and find him. Before he leaves, Benton opens a window to the lab and then makes his way out of the building, where he is observed by Percival and the master. Once they are satisfied he has fallen for their trick, the duo head for the lab. However, Benton sneaks back around the building and climbs in the window into the lab to lie in wait. The Master and Percival enter the room and he gets the drop on them, revealing that he knew the call was a fake when the Master called him, my dear fellow. The Master tricks him by saying the Doctor has arrived and then knocks him out. He then activates the machine and Benton recovers just in time to see the High Priest from the Temple of Poseidon arrive. Episode 3 
The high priest introduces himself as Crassus, and the master expresses his confusion that Crassus is from the Temple of Poseidon. Crassus chastises him, as the worship of Cronus within the temple is a secret, and he demands to know who the master is. The master further angers him by introducing himself as both a lord of time and of Cronus, but says that if Crassus helps him harness Cronus's power, then they can rule the universe together. Percival spots Benton as he sneaks out of the lab, but the master tells him not to worry. Crassus reluctantly admits that Cronus had been controlled by the priests of the temple in the past, but the secret of their control was lost 500 years before Crassus was born. He says that the only remnants of that time are the crystal and the seal of the high priest, which the master takes from him as it will give him the equations he needs to successfully summon Kronos. Outside, the doctor and the others are escorting Stu to the ambulance when Benton appears and tells him about the master in the lab and the appearance of Crassus. The brigadier orders Root and Joe to find shelter and for the doctor and Benton to follow him. Root, offended by the command, rushes after the brigadier and Benton whilst Joe draws the doctor's attention to Stu whose age fluctuates before their eyes. The doctor says that the master has successfully managed to summon Kronos. At that moment, Kronos appears in the lab and feeds on Percival, removing him from existence. The master then confronts Kronos, who resembles an armoured and helmeted humanoid bird, and uses the high priest's seal to keep him at bay before locking him inside the testing room. Outside, the doctor notices that the brigadier, Benton and Root have entered the time field and their movements have slowed down. He runs over to them and removes Root first from it, telling Joe to keep an eye on her whilst he goes to retrieve the others. He gets them out as well and tells them to all go back inside the Institute, telling Benton to bring com- the completely de-aged Stu with them as well. Back in the lab, the Master, despite Crassus's fears, successfully s- sends Cronus back into his own realm for the time being. The Master asks Crassus why he can't control him and tries to bring Cronus back if he doesn't serve him. Crassus mockingly tells the Master that the crystal in the Tom Tit machine is only a small part of the main crystal that is currently back in Atlantis, and without it he can never fully control Kronos. Back in Atlantis, a temple servant named Hippias brings King Dalios to the temple and shows him the empty crystal pedestal, and tells him about the disappearance of both it and Crassus. Dalios says that these events mean that Kronos is returning, and tells Hippias to follow him. As they walked down the corridors of the temple, the king reveals that he was there when the temple was first built over 500 years beforehand. He brings Hippias to a chamber that contains the actual crystal of Poseidon and says that with Crassus gone, he is the only one that will know the secret of its location. Suddenly, they hear a roar from inside the chamber and Dalias informs the startled youth that it is the guardian of the crystal, a terrifying man-beast hybrid. Back in the institute, the doctor and the others go back to Stu's room where he tells them that the only thing they can do is wait. The brigadier frustratedly voices his confusion of the doctor's changing attitude at the severity of the situation, and the Time Lord explains about the time field and how they wouldn't have noticed anything strange. The doctor then begins to collect bits and pieces from around the room, such as an empty wine bottle, keys, light diodes, corks, and cutlery. The brigadier's frustration continues to grow as Root and Stu are unable to give him any insight as to what it is, and the doctor eventually states that the device he is building is a time flow analogue. However, when he tries to use it, it doesn't work, and so Stu offers him a cup of tea, to which the doctor states that tea leaves are the final component needed. He tries again, and this time it seems to work, as the light diodes begin to flash. He tells everyone that this is similar to the device that he and the master used to build to interfere with each other's experiments when they were at school. Its effect is instantaneous, as in the lab, the master has been attempting to convince Crassus to remove the crystal from its housing, assuring him that it is inert. However, as the high priest tentatively reaches for it, it starts to glow again, and the master, realising what is happening, uses the control device to send a feedback spike that destroys the doctor's machine. 
Just then, Yates radios the brigadier saying that they are about 10 miles away and their brigadier tells him to hurry. Unbeknownst to them, the master is listening to their conversation and uses his machine to summon a medieval knight who charges the approaching convoy, forcing them off the road where they get stuck in the mud. Yates radios through to the brigadier, who is incredulous at the news. The master continues to hamper the convoy by summoning a battalion of round-head soldiers from the English Civil War to assault them. The doctor realises that the master is the cause of this, but informs the brigadier that they can't approach the lab without the safety of the TARDIS. The brigadier leaves Benton in charge of Luton Stew, whose offers of assistance he turns down, whilst he, the doctor and Joe go to retrieve the TARDIS from the convoy. The brigadier takes his own jeep to the convoy, thinking Bessie would be too slow, but he is amazed when they blast past him due to her souped-up engine. Meanwhile, the master realises that the roundheads are no match for the unit troops, and sends them back to their own time as Yates throws a grenade at them. The master then decides to end matters by summoning a German V-1 rocket to strike the convoy. The doctor and the brigadier stop just as they hear the sound of the bomb approaching. The brigadier radios Yates and warns him about the bomb, which explodes as Yates tells his men to take cover. The brigadier tries to contact Yates, but gets no response. Episode 4 The doctor and the others arrive at the convoy site, and much to Trisha's displeasure, Yates is still alive. <laughs> I love how you just, you just include that. A, to make sure I'm actively listening to you. Yeah. <laughs> and B, is a nice little nod. Continue. Yeah. All right. Episode 4 <laughs> Go on. Episode 4. The Doctor and the others arrive at the convoy site and see Yates alright, but several of his men are wounded from the explosion. The rest of them help their wounded comrades onto their trucks, and a few others try to get the TARDIS upright again as it toppled into the bomb crater. A local farmer who came to investigate the explosion uses his tractor to help get the ship back onto level ground. Meanwhile, Benton radios through to the brigadier and is relieved to hear that they are all right. When he finishes, he hears Root and Stu arguing, and Stu reveals that Root wants to go back to the lab and capture the master. Stu is reluctant to go due to the danger involved, but Root and Benton say that they can't sit idly by and let the master carry out his plan. After a bit more resistance, Stu agrees to join them, arming himself with a wrench as he leaves. In the lab, the master takes Crassus into his TARDIS and begins to recharge its power supply. This activates the time sensor, which Joe brings to the Doctor's attention. The Doctor tells the Brigadier that they are running out of time, and says he will use the time sensor to track the Master as he leaves and land his own TARDIS inside the Master's so as not to lose him. Joe insists on going as well, to which the Doctor gives a half-hearted attempt to dissuade her before letting her into the TARDIS. Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor says that attempting to land one inside the other will be dangerous, as they could get lost in the time stream or cause something called a time ram which is the destruction caused when two TARDISes occupy the same space and time. Again, Joe shows her cheery determination to go with him, and with a grateful salute, the Doctor takes off. However, the results backfire as the TARDIS rematerializes with the Master's TARDIS inside it. The Doctor tells Joe to activate the external view screen, but they only see a red glowing light, and he says that they are looking at the time vortex through the gap in the space-time created by the Tom Tit machine. He opens the door to go check on outside but finds himself in the console room of the master's TARDIS. He calls Joe to follow him and he leads her out of the doors back into their own TARDIS. He tells her that both TARDISes currently exist inside each other and the only thing that they can do now is wait. Meanwhile, out in the lab, Crassus informs the master that the unit convoy is approaching and he sets up a time field that completely stops the brigadier and his men in their tracks. 
The master tells Crassus to go into the TARDIS, but before he can join him, he is stopped by the arrival of Root and Stu. Benton sneaks in through the window behind him, holding him at gunpoint, and the master rues the fact that he didn't kill him earlier. Benton tells Stu to search him for a weapon, but the master throws him into Benton and then dashes into the TARDIS. Crassus shows him the doctor's TARDIS, which delights the master as he takes off. The takeoff throws Joe to the floor, and the doctor explains that as the TARDIS is partially sentient, taking off out of phase throws her out of sync, but he manages to stabilize it. The master then appears on the view screen and mockingly apologizes to Joe for her bruised tailbone. Back in the lab, the trio argue as to whether or not to turn off the Tom Tit machine. Benton, angry at Stu for letting the master get away, says that they shouldn't do it without the doctor due to the danger that he cited. Root, frustrated with the arguing men, says that they have to make a decision. Stu then notices the frozen unit troops outside, and Root asks Benton to let her turn off the machine, which he reluctantly agrees to. However, the Brigadier and his men remain frozen in place. Root suggests that the Tom Tit machine could have created a permanent gap in space-time in their area, and they will need to seal it. She inverts the control circuits on the machine, and she and Stu start it up. The power level starts to spike, and as they try to even it out, neither of them notices Benton briefly glow black before collapsing to the floor. They successfully reduce the power surge and shut the machine down again. However, the men outside remain frozen in place, and when they try again, they hear a sound coming from beneath the machine. They look down to see Benton, who's been de-aged to a toddler. Back on the TARDISes, the Master invites the Doctor to come out for a chat, but the Doctor says that doing so will kill him. The Doctor begins to warn the Master that his plan will destroy the universe, but the Master mutes him, letting him speak on and mockingly telling Crassus that the Doctor's ego is easily bruised and that he'll storm out once he realises that he's been muted. The Doctor does in fact angrily realise what's happened, and he bypasses the tarts of speakers so that the Master can't turn him off. Not to be outdone, the Master reverses the translation circuits on the Doctor's TARDIS so that his words come out in reverse. The Doctor says that he has no other choice but to go out into the Master's TARDIS. He tells Joe to close the doors after he leaves, but she refuses as she knows he could die. The Doctor orders her to obey him, and she reluctantly does so. Once he goes outside, the Master summons Kronos, who attacks the Doctor and causes him to vanish as Percival did. The Master then addresses the despondent Joe, who tells him that she doesn't care what he does, and so he activates his own TARDIS, separating the two ships, and sends the Doctor's one hurtling into the time vortex, with Joe trapped inside. Episode 5 Joe, who was thrown to the ground after the TARDIS is split, gathers herself and suddenly hears whispering voices fill the air. The voices belong to the Doctor, who reveals that he is currently stuck in the time vortex. He guides Joe to an emergency switch on the console, and when she flips it, he rematerializes inside the TARDIS. Meanwhile, in the palace courtyard in Atlantis, Hippias approaches Dalios and addresses the fact that the people are close to starving due to the poor harvest and demands that they use their control over Kronos to replenish the crops. Arguments break up between the various courtiers, but Dalios silences them and tells Hippias that the overabundance of resources led to violence and debauchery in the past. He then warns that if Kronos returns, then Atlantis will be doomed to destruction. Suddenly, Galea, Dalios's young queen, tells him that she hears a strange sound, and the sound of the dematerializing TARDIS fills the air. The Master's TARDIS appears and he steps out, ignoring the royal guards that surround him. He announces that he has been sent by the gods and brings out Crassus to back up his claim. Dalios is sceptical, but Galea and the others ask him to let Crassus speak, and he confirms that he has seen Kronos. Dalius orders him to enter his private quarters to discuss the matters, 
and misses the awestruck look Galea gives the Master as she follows him. Meanwhile, the Doctor uses the time sensor to locate the Master's TARDIS, and they land in the courtyard, and he and Joe find themselves surrounded by the Royal Guards. A shot Crassus orders them to be killed, but Hippias intervenes, and Crassus reluctantly orders them to be sent to Dalios. In his personal chambers, Dalios is doubtful of the Master's claims that he has gained control of Kronos, and laughs at the Master's attempts to hypnotise him. He continues to ridicule the Master's claims of being an emissary from the gods, and says that they both know that Kronos is neither a god nor a titan, but something else. The Master storms away in frustration, with Dalios saying that he will be waiting for him to return. Outside, the Master's mood is worsened when he sees the Doctor and Joe being escorted to Dalios. Dalios greets them and asks Hippias to take Joe to Galea, who is currently discussing the Master with her personal slave, Lachis. Galea reveals her attraction to him and the power he exudes. Lachis states that she prefers Hippias, and Galea mockingly calls him a petulant boy. However, her words are overheard by Hippias, but she mocks him to his face over his failure to take Dalius's support away from him. Hippias ignores her and brings Joe in, who is sent with Lachis to be given more appropriate clothing. Once they are gone, Galea dismisses Hippias, who comments that she was a better person before she became queen. She calls Lachis back to her and then orders her to make contact with the Master. Back in Dalius's chamber, the king reveals that he and his supporters once tried to destroy the crystal in the temple, but only succeeded in breaking the smaller one that the master has. The doctor realizes that it is similar to Otardis and that it exists both in and out of time. Later, Joe models her clothes and Grecian wig for Lachis, and then suggests that they should show Galea. Lachis tells her that she is currently meeting the master in her chambers, where they are discussing the ancient mysteries of Kronos. Joe listens at their door, convincing the nervous Lachis that they won't be caught. Inside, the Master charms Galea, saying that if she helps him, then he can return Atlantis to its former glory. He promises that he will not harm Dalios, but will instead oust him from power and allow her to rule, swearing his allegiance to her. Enarmored, Galea reveals the location of the crystal and the presence of its guardian. At that same moment, Dalios informs the Doctor that the guardian is an old friend of his, who wished for the strength of a bull and long life, and so Cronus transformed him into a hybrid of man and bull, which the Doctor realises is the legendary Minotaur. Meanwhile, Joe and Lachis overhear the Master and Galea plot to spend Hippias to face the Guardian, and they send Crassus to fetch him. Joe says that they need to warn the King, using Lachis's attraction to Hippias to convince her to help. However, they are stopped at Dalios's door by the Royal Guard and Chancellor Creto, a supporter of Galea. Joe spots Crassus leading Hippias out of the palace and tells Lachis to try and contact the Doctor while she follows after Hippias. She follows him to the underground temple and watches as Hippias enters the chamber out to the crystal. She tries to call after him to warn him, but she is caught by Crassus, who throws her into the chamber and closes the door behind her. Joe tries to get it open again, but stops when she hears roaring from close by. Episode 6 Lachis barges into the king's chambers and tells the doctor and Dalios what has happened before she is taken away by Crito. The doctor rushes to the underground temple, where he encounters Crassus, who orders a guard to stop him. The Doctor disarms the guard and takes the key to the chamber from Crassus and hurries inside. He eventually finds Joe, who has been desperately trying to evade the Minotaur in the mirror-filled maze, but is trapped in a dead end. Hippias appears and distracts the Minotaur, but he proves no match for the creature and is thrown through one of the mirrors to his death. The Doctor takes off his cape and uses it like a matador to distract the beast and send it crashing through one of the walls, dying as the stones from it fall on him. Joe says that they should check on Hippias, but the Doctor says that he is dead, before noticing a glow coming from the hole in the wall that the Minotaur made. 
They climb through and they see the crystal, but they are apprehended by Crassus and the squad of guards, telling them that they will be executed. The doctor demands to see the king, but when they arrive at Dalios' chambers, they are shocked to see the master there instead of with Galea. The master says that Gerku was successful, and he thanks the doctor and Joe for bringing him the crystal, before telling them that as a reward, he will bring Kronos to them tomorrow. He orders them to be taken away and begins preparations to summon Kronos, telling Galea that she must leave as well. However, Galea reminds him that she is a queen and not to be ordered around like a servant. She then leaves the room, leaving the master to simmer at her defiance. Inside their cell, Joe tries to get out of her manacles but is unable to do so. She asks the doctor what would happen if the master calls Kronos and he tells her that the fabric of the universe will be completely destroyed. Joe comments that struggling in the face of such power seems like a pointless exercise and the doctor says that he felt that way once when he was younger. He tells her a story about how he met a hermit that lived on the mountain where his home was and how without saying anything, he made the doctor appreciate the beauty in life in all things. Joe admits that the story helped cheer her up and tells the doctor that she regrets nothing when he apologises to her for getting her into trouble. Suddenly the door to the cell opens and Dalius is thrown in by his former guards. He demands to see Galea and is beaten when he tries to get past them. Dalios, realising that he is dying, reveals to the Doctor and Joe a prophecy he saw of the destruction of the world and begs them to save it. He then dies in Joe's arms and the Doctor swears to honour his request. Later, they are brought up to the palace courtyard where Galea has summoned the Royal Council to inform him that the Master has succeeded Dalios as king. The Master tells them that he intends to summon Kronos and tells Crassus to prepare the Tom Tit machine. As they are setting it up, the Doctor and Joe loudly announce that Dalios is dead, much to the shock of Galea. She confronts the Master about this and he admits that he died, but reminds Galea of the power that she will now receive. Galea, grief-stricken, orders the Master to be arrested, but he orders Crassus to activate the machine. Cronus appears and begins to wreak havoc throughout the city, destroying buildings with bolts of lightning, causing many people to die from the falling masonry. The Master uses the distraction to break free of the guards and head for the crystal. Joe manages to get free of her manacles and rushes after him, jumping on his back to try and stop him, but he carries her into his TARDIS and takes off. Galea frees the Doctor and he follows them in his own TARDIS, leaving the Queen to survey the destruction as Cronus continues to fly overhead. In his TARDIS, the Master gloats over the Doctor's demise, but Joe tells him that he can't hope to control Cronus. He uses the destruction of the palace as proof of his command over the Cronovore, but Joe tells him that a tiger can come when he hears a lamb bleating. The Master tells her that the Doctor will be proud of her metaphor, but returns to gloating over his fallen foe. However, the Doctor appears on the view screen and promises to rescue Joe and stop the Master. The Master says that he holds all the cards, but the Doctor threatens to time-ram both their TARDISes. The Master, believing that he wouldn't risk hurting Joe, calls the Doctor's bluff and he is proven right when the Doctor stops at the last moment. Joe begs the Doctor to do it in order to save everyone, and when he still refuses, she activates the corresponding switch on the Master's TARDIS, and the two ships collide. A short while later, Joe wakes up on the floor and sees the Master unconscious. She exits his TARDIS and sees both it and the Doctor's one stationary in a strange haze of cloud. She enters the Doctor's TARDIS and finds him on the floor. She wakes him up and tells him that they are in some sort of afterlife. She brings him outside and the Doctor says that they aren't in heaven, and then tries to admonish her for creating the time ram, but stops when he admits that he wasn't going to do it himself. Suddenly, they hear a woman's voice and they turn to see a large floating head above them. The woman introduces herself as Kronos and explains to a confused Joe that she is neither good nor evil, male nor female, destroyer or life giver. She tells them that she was released from the Master's control due to the time ram 
and that they are now on the border of her reality and theirs. She thanks them for saving her and offers them anything that they want. They ask to go back to their own world and Joe asks what is to happen with the Master. Corona says that he is to be tortured for eternity due to his crimes and the Master, having just woken up, rushes out and begs the Doctor for mercy. The Doctor asks for the Master to be freed and Cronus agrees, but the Doctor informs him that he is to return to Earth with them. The Master agrees, but then pushes Joe into the Doctor and flees back into his own TARDIS. The Doctor tells Cronus to stop him, but she says that she gave him his freedom as requested. Realising that there is nothing more that they can do, the duo then enter their TARDIS and head back to Earth. Joe asks why he let the Master go, and he says that he couldn't subject him to an eternity of torment, and she admits that she couldn't either. They arrive back at the lab, just as Root and Stu are trying to dissipate the time field again. It works, but the machine explodes as a result, but thankfully no one is hurt. The Brigadier enters and is confused as to Joe's appearance and the absence of the Master. He asks where Benton is, and the now naked sergeant stands up and confusedly asks what is going on. End of the story. So, I'm now going to give my voice a bit of a rest after like, trying to pronounce lots of different Greek names and lots of <laughs> K's and S's and whatnot. Uh, so we're going to go to the trivia spot while I take a bit of a breather. It's a good thing you don't have to read Rick Riordan books out loud. <laughs> oh my god, I, I love that guy's books with Jesus Almighty. Okay, so the time monster. Air date for the story is the 20th of May to the 24th of June, 1972. The writer was Robert Slowman. Now, we have had work from Robert before. He worked with Barry Letts under the pseudonym Guy Leopold on The Demons. Barry worked with him on this one as well, but is uncredited. The two will work together on two more stories, for which Barry is again uncredited, those being The Green Death and The Planet of the Spiders. Basically, they're going for season closers. <laughs> yeah, so it was like The Demons was the, la- was the season closer, yeah. this is the season closer. Yeah. Because we have discussed before how Barry wanted to write for the show as well. Yeah. And so I think he just puts his stamp on season closers. And I suppose you can kind of tell that Barry has his influence in this because of the hermit story. Because that's yeah. very... Because Barry, Barry is a Buddhist, doesn't he? He is, yeah. Yeah, so there's very some there's a very kind of Buddhist mentality to that monologue. Yeah, very much so. Robert sadly passed away in 2005. The director for the story is Paul Bernard. This is the second of three stories directed by Paul. We previously saw his work earlier this season in Day of the Daleks. His final story is going to be Frontier in Space. Paul passed away in 1997. What did you think of the new design of the interior of the TARDIS? Very 70s disco. I thought it was shit. (laughs) I I didn't like it at all. It's like a million eyes watching you. (laughs) Like It was so creepy. So it's been a long time now since we described the Taurus interior, but the old ones were like, if you ever get like a, a board game that has lots of little pop-up stuff, it was like the fra- the mesh of that with just like obviously the white circles inside it. This though looks like an awful lot of like... Um, it's like the end uh, of a lot of yogurt pots or, or with googly eyes yeah, in the middle yeah. of it. Or, you know, the, those big kind of lights they have for professional photography shoots. Those kind of di- yeah, di- but dishes. closer to the yogurt part, I think. <laughs> we can agree that it's terrible anyway. Yeah, so this was the debut of the first redesign of the TARDIS console room. So it had been the exact same console room up until now. Mm-hmm. And 
you'll notice that the third doctor and the master they had the same interior mm -hmm. the center console was like the time rotor was different on them but the interior was the same actually speaking of the master's tardis we're actually seeing it from a different angle because if mm -hmm. you remember in colony in space on as you're looking at it in colony in space the door opens on the right hand side whereas here yeah. it's on the left hand side so Indeed. we're seeing we're seeing things from a different angle yeah now i'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler for next week <gasps> this design doesn't last very long <laughs> <laughs> and I'll explain why next week. So during the Doctor's vision, dream, whatever, the opening for episode one, basically, mm -hmm. we have that same volcano stock footage that was used in Enemy of the World and was used in Inferno. Yeah. That same thing happening again. One of the things that if you pay close attention, you'll realize is that when the Doctor is sort of in the vortex and like his consciousness is you know, mm -hmm. talking to Joe or whatever. And um, there's all these other voices as well. And yeah. he says those are his subconscious thoughts. If you listen very closely, one of them actually sounds female. Really? Yeah. Which could be the first reference to the idea of being able to change genders mm. after regenerating. Either that, or he's a bit like the girl from Inside Out, where parts of his personality just lean more female or something. Mm. Who knows? He also said like that don't pay too much attention to them because some of them he he's not quite proud of. So like, yeah. I'm I'm wondering like like is that in his past or is it, like his subconscious thoughts about some people that he knows and well like he says they're his subconscious thoughts. Like, your yeah. subconscious thoughts are like the idea is that it's the thoughts he's having in the here and now. Oh, okay. Like your subconscious isn't your past; it's your yeah. subconscious. So like, the conscious. <laughs> The conscious moment is now. Okay. But I imagine it's a case of like, so he's talking to Joe, but part of his mind is like, that fucking prick. Yeah. He just, <laughs> he just like spells me out into space, the fucker. It's like, maybe that's what he's not proud of. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> so there was a scene that was dropped before the recording of episode five, hmm. where the doctor would activate a device in the TARDIS that would allow Joe to speak the ancient Atlantean language. Because up until now, there has been no question of how does she understand what people are saying. Mm. This type of thing, it hasn't come up. So there was meant to be a scene where the Doctor would activate a device that would allow her to speak that language, but they decided to drop it. I'm imagining timing reasons, maybe. Mm. Speaking of forms being different from maybe the gender you'd expect them to be, it was actually Paul Bernard's idea that Kronos' final form should be that of a young woman. Hmm. Even though Kronos is obviously like the father of the gods yeah. who's depicted as male, hmm. um, both mythologically and also within the start of the story, like that bird creature has a very Masculine. male physique. Yeah. That makes sense. Apparently the historical setting was actually suggested by the Doctor Who fan club, which is quite cool. Hmm. They got to say, you know, why don't you do one set in Atlantis? So we mentioned Barry and the fact that he's a Buddhist. Um, so, you know, what you were saying earlier, that's completely true. So he wanted to portray the doctor as being semi-enlightened. Mm -hmm. So he's not this completely like enlightened being. Hmm. He's semi-enlightened. So he can see the universe more clearly than most people. But he's still flawed. Yeah. Do you know, he still, you know, goes overboard or, you know, gets angry or whatever. 
Um, and yeah, that I, the story of the hermit on his home planet that was that's total Barry. Like, like if you think about it right now, it it my it, my reading of it is that he he said he had like this new appreciation for like you know like the the stones weren't grey but they were myriad of colours and like the patches of ice, snow weren't drab they were filled with life and all this type of stuff. Do you remember when we first met the doctor? Like he used to love arriving arriving on planets and taking surveys and exploring yeah. the surroundings like i i don't know whether it was intentional but i think that that's a perfect kind of circle you know to the the, the hartnell doctor got that and that's where his love of exploration may have come from to see what wonders the universe may have had yeah i like that idea like i always like i mean the way they i think that hermit story is lovely anyway mm. um because it's clearly this idea of someone who's suffering from depression yeah or something like that finding the beauty in the mundane yeah you know which is very sweet and it's obviously it's a very sort of high level you know depiction of that you know obviously dealing with actual depression is a lot harder than that yeah but i do love the idea that like it was that conversation that led him to see the beauty in the mundane and like you said like that he wants to see the beauty and catalog all these different planets that he goes to and find the beauty in the mundane which i think is very sweet do you think as well, like that that speech? Now, like Joe says that, all right, it kind of, you know, it cheered her up a small bit. Do mm. you think that that speech had anything to do with her, like or what she did, like being the one to activate the time ram? Because you know he talked about the beauty in the universe. Do you think she would have done it without hearing that story? Or we can get to, we can get to that when we're talking about Joe as a character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, spoiler: I think she would, but we can yeah. talk about that more. <laughs> cool, perfect. Greg Powell was a stuntman who played the knight who attacked mm. Dopey's convoy. Um, he was actually thrown from his horse when the horse didn't follow the planned route and it collided with one of the unit vehicles. Apparently there's a lot of varying accounts in terms of the injuries to both Greg and the unit and the horse itself, mm. you know. But Equity, who's the UK actors union, they condemned the incident. Because budgetary limitations had prevented our director, Paul Bernard, from hiring more than one stunt driver. So equity was kind of saying this could have been avoided Mm. had you actually spent more money on making sure your people were safe. Um, What was the extent of the horse's injuries in the story? It it varies. There's no... I I didn't find a a specific Mm. mention of it. I imagine, I mean... If it collided with a car, you know, there's only so many ways that can go. Like, so I suppose, I suppose it depends on what way they they did collide with it. And but, I mean, yeah. I, like anything greater than a broken leg, and for a horse, that's yeah, that's it. Like, you know. um, but I think this type of thing, you know, there's obviously you know, at the time of recording this, there's a lot of talk in Hollywood at the moment around prop guns and yeah. stunts like that mm. you know this this isn't a new problem and you know we kind of joke about you know some of the stunt guys you know making their dives very obvious that was my mum's comment about <laughs> last season um but like the job that they have to do is incredibly dangerous do you know i'm actually off topic for a moment i'm reminded of a story i read um uh, you know the actor Earl Flynn, like very kind of mm. famous. Yeah, so he did a, a version of the Charge of the Light Brigade, like back in the forties, I think. Mm. And the director 
wanted to have like you know realistic depictions of the cavalry that getting mown down or whatever mm. so he, unbeknownst to a lot of people he set up like trip wires and pitfalls for the horses so that jesus like, christ yeah so like that like not huge pitfalls but obviously just a small bit of like you know fake grounds so that they would stumble and they'd spill their riders and all this kind of stuff and like earl flynn like who was a passionate equestrian like i i, I don't know where he got him fired or he made sure that he never fucking worked again afterwards but like, he went ape shit on your man mm. justifiably so like because yeah for like you know definitely for the horse because like, you know you see a lot of movies where it's like you know horse gets a really bad fall and you're like jesus christ like is it okay and then you, you find out that these horses are so experienced that they know how to take the falls to make it as re- mm. realistic as possible yeah i mean we're going to have more stories going forward there's two immediately coming to mind um not next season but in mm. the seasons after around stunts going wrong yeah or stunts that maybe weren't fully prepared for um it's just you know something to keep in mind mm-hmm. the other side of things with <laughs> um bessie so john pertwee and katie used to drive around in bessie anyway right yeah but oftentimes they would film scenes where they have a side mounted camera on mm. bessie and the two of them would just drive to get the the scenes. At one point during filming, they realized they they got lost. <laughs> For fuck's sake. They didn't know where they were. And nobody else knew where they were either. Because they just driven off to get some you know, film of them driving the car. Mm. By the time they were able to make it back to Paul Bernard, he was already assembling search parties to go find them. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they get a small bit lost? In the demons. They did, yeah. Like, because okay. the two of them just go off in the car. Cool. Going forward, I hope Robert Sloman never writes a scene where they have to drive in the countryside, because I'm holding him responsible. <laughs> what did you think of the Doctor and Joe and the whole sort of, you know, permission to come aboard before they uh, went off to Atlantis? What I, did you think I, of that? I thought it was cute. I thought it was a nice moment for their relationship. Uh, apparently, it was not in the script. That makes it even better. Yeah. And also the composer added um, a small bit from the Sailor's Hornpipe melody in order to complete mm-hmm. the little bit of... <laughs> this is the sort of motif that they were going for. Kronos we'll get to as a character later on, but Robert Sloman wasn't impressed with the realisation of Kronos. He envisaged it as kind of like a shimmer and a vibration, not a guy on a pulley flapping his arms. <laughs> I-, I wonder like, uh, who is... Like, who's the, the worst of it? The the prick in a cape from Curse of Peloton? Or... <laughs> <laughs> so, at the end of the story, as Paddy mentioned, Baby Benton grows up mm-hmm. and becomes John right. Levine again, mm-hmm. who was terrified that his nappy would fall off, which I think is an understandable fear. <laughs> oh. Yeah, maybe. You're standing like... in a room full of your colleagues in a nappy. So, was that like kind of. That nervous smile was that actually it? That was uh, art imitating life. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So let's go on to our cast, right? So, as Doctor Ruth Ingram, we have Wanda Moore. This is her only Doctor Who acting credit. Her non-Who credits include Vandervalk, Within These Walls, Howard's Way, Free Wheelers, and Triangle. Hmm. Stuart Hyde, or Stu, as you keep calling him, is Ian Collier. This is the first of two Doctor Who appearances for Ian. We'll see him again in Arc of Infinity. 
His non-two credits include Rules of Engagement, Poirot, All Creatures Great and Small, Howard's Way Again, and Emmerdale Farm. Ian passed away in 2008. Dalios is played by George Cormack. This is the first of two Doctor Who appearances for George. We will see him again in Planet of the Spiders. His non-Who credits include The Feathered Serpent, the TV series version of The Prime of Miss June Brody, Compact, Emergency Ward 10, and Star and Company. George passed away in 1983. Kronos was played by two people. We had Kronos in the bird form, and then we had Kronos the face. So the bird form of Kronos is played by Mark Boyle. So Mark was mostly a stuntman, and this is his only credited acting role on Doctor Who, though he did a lot of stunt work. Outside of Who, he also worked on The Italian Job, Some Mothers Do Have Them, Space 1999, A Bridge Too Far, An American World in London, The Fifth Element, and the first three Star Wars films mm. as a stunt performer. Mark passed away in 1999. The face of Kronos is played by Ingrid Bauer. This is her only Doctor Who acting credit. Her non-Who credits include Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, The Pink Chiquitas, and Going Dutch. As Galea, we have Ingrid Pitt. This is the first of two Doctor Who appearances for Ingrid. We'll see her again in Warriors of the Deep. Her non-Who credits include The Saint, Doctor Zhivago, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Paddy's Favourite, Where Eagles Dare, Yes, The Wicker Man, Octopussy, and Hannah's War. Ingrid passed away in 2010. Now, I'm going to end on a sad note, um, even sadder than Ingrid passing away in 2010. Baby Benton is played by Darren Plant. And according to John Levine on the DVD commentary, Darren did not live to see his first birthday. Oh. Which is soul-destroying, really. Yeah, um, yeah that, that is because, you know, me, I'm a big softie, especially now that I'm a dad. And yeah, that is... So uh, he was about nine, maybe between eight and ten months old, I imagine, hmm. when they actually filmed it, because, I mean, he's not a baby baby Benton, do you know, like, he's close to a toddler baby Benton. Yeah. And so it would have been shortly after they they filmed that, sadly, Darren passed away. Um. Yeah, like just anything to do, whether it be in real life or in visual media that involves kids uh, being sick or dying, I hate it. I, I, I fucking hate it. Yeah, well, it, it really gets to me. Always has. I don't think oh, there's anyone who likes it. <laughs> yeah, no, it always has, but it's just like, oh, my fucking, like, I, I can't. Like, you see some people, it's like, I know some people are just like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's sad, it's in the movie or whatever. Like, even when it's in the movie, like, I can't hack it. Like, mm. my wife watches Grey's Anatomy. Like, whenever it has anything to do with kids, I'm like, nope, can't watch this. No, God, no. Uh, two things, or sorry, three things. No. One, I think this might be our first time in a very long time where none of our guest stars starred in Z cars. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think they did. No. I don't remember seeing it. I might be wrong. Uh, cool. There is... Next thing is there is another Star Wars connection to this particular story. Mm. Is that the Minotaur is played by David Prowse. A.K.A. Ah. Darth Vader. Yeah. Also known as the Green Cross Code Man who used to scare children across the road. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, this is one thing I... I, I burst my ass laughing when i noticed it so i think it's in like episode it's either episode uh it's episode five when galay and the master are conspiring Mm. and like they're talking or something there's a moment of silence and then you just hear katie manning off camera cough 
And I was like, "Geez, they're really committed to this whole like film is expensive and fucking shit." <laughs> it's like, I mean, co- come on! I mean, like the oh, amount of like it's not even just Doctor Who. Like, I was yeah. having a, a thought about this the other day. Mm. I was watching some video about Game of Thrones and how it went completely off the rails, mm. and how like people clearly didn't care, and they're like, "Yo, you've the guy with the boom mic." And like mm. it's always the guy with the boom mic yeah, <laughs> who's in shot. And obviously they had like the Starbucks cop and whatever. So it's not just Doctor Who. It's you know a lot of programs just don't catch these things, do you know. And I think I think part of it is on the day you can be very can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. Do you know like it's not until later on you realize oh shit that was actually that was there. Oh, it's just it's just so funny. It was, you know we must be secret. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and now we come to the middle of the podcast (laughs) (sighs) so we do come to the middle of the podcast so let's talk about our characters so we have the doctor Mm -hmm. we have our companions of Paddy, tell me because I didn't look at your notes to see who the companions so, are in the story. Okay, I put I put down Joe the Brigadier, Yates because he needs to be talked about, Benton. I then have the prominent characters of Root, Stu, and Dalios. Hmm. And then and I put Kronos down as a prominent character. And then hmm. for the villains, I put down the Master and Galea. Okay, that, that, that's pretty much where I thought you were going to do with it. Um, I wasn't sure what you'd do with Galea. So. Yeah, uh, like. Everyone has, for me anyway, I think there's some very interesting discussions to be had around certain characters and mm. their placement in the certain lists. It's like, well, you know, you could, you could push them into one camp or you could push them into the other. Mm. But again, I think that's where the beauty of these conversations come from. Cool. So let's start with the Doctor. So mm. what were your thoughts on Doc John this time around? So I really liked him this time around. Really did. Mm. We have a very Professor X moment from him at the end when dealing with the Master. In the mm. sense of giving him, you know, the benefit of the doubt again, despite the fact that he really shouldn't. I I really wish like the doctor would like invest in a taser or like a sedative gun just to kind of just like, knock him out. Mm. Um, I loved the monologue, absolutely mm. loved it. I listened back to it three or four times, even when I didn't need, even when I had gotten what it was, I listened back to it three or four times because it's just so, it's so wonderfully done. Um. Mm. And I think at this stage, it's almost like a requirement that when you're a potential actor looking to play the doctor, you need to be able to give a monologue like you genuinely believe it. And like I said about you know, William Hartnell's monologue at, you know, for the massacre, and that was like, I, I believe that that was a lot of real life inspiration with everyone having left the show. Yeah. When he talked about the, the characters leaving, he was putting an awful lot of his personal feelings into that one. Hmm. The same way with Patrick Troughton in Tomb of the uh, Cybermen when he gives his speech about trying to remember his family, you know, mm. and like you can look it into it like you know in the sort of like a way that an actor has to really get into their character's role and they have to push, like sometimes they might be playing a character that's against their own personal grain. Mm. So like, I'm, we John has had some really good speaking moments, but I just thought this was beautiful, you know. 
Um, I love the relationship with Joe. I thought mm. like you know it, it was great, and you actually get to see you know the the Doctor and Joe is definitely stemming from Katie and John. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. You get you get to see that, and again, I liked his conversation with Davios because the Doctor is very humble and cordial to him, mm. and it reminds me of um sorry it reminds me of like stuff that this particular you know like john has done you know with um i'll say it when we get to davios as well like but john's interaction with the city elder in colony in space or with the first elder in sensorites you know i just like the fact that john is able to carry that true line of being humble when when he needs to be yeah so i I thought it was a very very good uh, showing from john this time around yeah, I agree. I think it's a very solid performance. There was nothing um, overtly negative about it, which is great. Hmm. Um, at one point, I was writing in my notes, I was like, has not made a sexist or demeaning comment as of yet. Um, it's good to see him sciencing it out. That's always great. He worked really well with others for the most part, do you know? Um, and I like that he didn't um go after Ruth in any way. Do you know there was no blame laid at her feet, mm. her horse due. There was also no sort of like, oh get out of here, you don't know what you're doing. No. You know, he trusted her that it was her experiment or whatever. And there was no like trying to take it over. There was no bluster there. Yeah, because like he's like when he found out that Ruth was involved with the project just as much as the master, he was like, right, tell me everything. Yeah. It was very much a respect thing, which is great to see. Like you, I love his story about the hermit. And that's something we're going to come back to in a couple of weeks. We're going to probably touch on that story again in a future um, episode. Dude, you need to stop wanting the master to live. (laughs) I get it. He was an old friend of yours. But like, and you don't like violence for the most part, except when you do. But like, the guy's a sociopath who expelled you unprotected into the time vortex Mm. and would love nothing more than for you to die. There is a point in time we've to draw a line in the sand and go, okay, we've reached that point now. I would think having him be eaten by this terrifying, you know, time monster would be that line in the sand. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, you're my best friend, whatever. I'm sure there is a limit to shit that you would do that I would forgive you for. And yep. having a time monster eat me, mm-hmm. dude, it is a warning you now. That's the limit. If you do that, then fuck you. <laughs> if, I, if I gain access to a time monster, I'm not going to like waste it on such like a, I won't say a trivial thing, but I'm not going to waste it, its abilities on that. But yeah, it's it's the one thing and I know they want to keep the character of the Master and Roger and John have such a great dynamic. Mm. Like that back and forth on the screens was so was so funny. It was so good. It was so well done. But like it's making the Doctor out to either be incompetent yeah, or Kind of like I commented on it before that he sees all these interactions with the master as a bit of a game. Yeah, it's like, dude, people keep dying. Hmm. You know, the needs of the many maybe needs yeah. to be something for him to consider. And I know that's not a thing the doctor would ever want to do, 
but like he needs to hmm. draw that line in the sand i think yeah um it is a like it's such a weird relationship you know it, yeah. it, it really, really is. Because I made the Professor X analogy there. And when we get to the Masters, like, well, I don't think you're as as much of a Magneto in, the, in this particular instance. But that's, no. that, but that's for the Master. But yeah, like this, this is, this is the third Doctor that I love. Mm. You know? Yeah. Very much so. So, on to uh, Jojo. Or just just Joe, as she's likes to be called. Don't call yourself dim. Mm. You're not. <laughs> Particularly when she then just randomly spouts out about like you know, Atlantis and you know the misconceptions around where Atlantis yeah. is, and I'm like, dude, stop hiding your intelligence. Or the like, fact that she understands what like a time like how the time sensor works in terms yeah. of you know the time field and things like that. Yeah, and also the fact that he just handed her this thing hmm. and she immediately triangulated position from it. That looks a weirdly bit like a like a dick and balls. It does a small bit. It does. It does a bit. Like she immediately triangulated, you know, distance from it and whatever. Even though he hadn't explained to her how it worked, do you know? Yeah. Um, I really wish she'd stop like underselling her own intelligence and i know she kind of says it a little bit as a joke hmm. like i know that i'm not as intelligent as you which you know okay she's not as intelligent as the doctor that's that's fine um very few the characters are but like i know she kind of does it to get him to explain things to her but just stop saying it yeah you know? just ask him normally um unfortunately for most of the story she was kind of just there you know, she had certain moments. Like, I love how the doctor trusts her so much. You know, he left her in charge of the sensor. You know, mm. he clearly had no issue with her interacting with the TARDIS and whatever. Like, you know, there's full trust there. Mm. But for most of the story, I don't think Joe actually, until the very end, like maybe end of episode five and into episode, end of episode six, I don't think Joe actually drove the plot in any way not like we've seen from her before like not like we've seen in um peladon not like we saw in sea devils Devils. you know here she was just kind of there Mm. for a lot of it yeah yeah because i suppose it's one of those things of like where you can be you can be there you can be there and not contribute a thing kind of like I was actually just listening back to one of our episodes there as I was uh, doing some work in the garden. Uh, the Web of Fear with Victoria. Like, God love her. Vicky. She's just... No, Victoria. Oh, the Web of Fear. Yeah. I was thinking about Planet. Yeah. yeah. The Web of Fear. She's just there. She's yeah. Just there. Whereas here, while Joe is there, like, she has some great moments. She has some great character moments. Like, she's utterly fearless. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, like, my heart broke for her when she realized that the Doctor was gone. Hmm. You know, and the master was like, well, you know, I'm going to kill you too, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, my heart broke for her. And I think at the end, like you mentioned in the trivia spot, like, would would she have made that sacrifice with the time ramp if he hadn't told her the story? And I think she would have, because I think mm-hmm. that's in Joe's nature. Do you know, I think she's a very selfless person in general. She'd have to be to the doctor's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think she would have done that anyway. 
as I put it, she has a great lion the grenade moment. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And not in this weird sort of half falling over fashion that the doctor no, had no, in the sea devils. Like, no, it's like le- it's legitimately she turns that thing with a passion, right? Or with a sorry, with a purpose. It's basically if you won't do it, well, I fucking will. Yeah. So, you know, and I I think like that's like one of my fa- one of my favorite moments, uh, a companion moment in that sort of vein is during the David Tennant's run. And I, I just, I like that when the companion is able to put, like, you know, people that they haven't met or people that they've only just met or all this kind of stuff, they're able mm. to put their own, that well-being above their own well-being. Yeah. Uh, and I like my last point about Joe is I, I love the fact that she had to jump on the master's back and try, that's how she tried to stop him, by jumping on his back and beating on his shoulders and head like a child yeah and again that kind of goes into like why i said that i think she would have done the time ram anyway yeah like you know she is perfectly willing to jump in and get things done i do have one question though yes did atlanteans just have wigs lying around yeah um, for visitors who didn't have long hair no it's (laughs) so i actually kind of found this out by watching the stars show spartacus is mm. that um well off or like so like your know, rich and noble ladies would actually have wigs for just general oh. locations so probably just got like a spare of galeas okay yeah um but I, I think it does lead into the fact that joe is just utterly fearless as well like so that's oh yeah the thing. completely wearing another lady's wig takes a lot of courage it does indeed it really does <laughs> You don't know what sort of weird head lice that she might have. <laughs> so now we move on to the Brigadier. Oh, my dear fellow. Advanced technology really is beyond you, isn't it? Mm. However, like, okay. So here we get the Brig. We get the Brig we know and love. Yeah. We see him leading from the front. All that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Females stay undercover. Yeah. Alistair, I know what you meant. <laughs> That's how you said it. You need to learn to phrase things better. Yeah. Civilians stay undercover. Yeah. Non-military stay undercover. Um, ladies stay here. Hmm. Females stay undercover. Not only is it an incredibly sexist way of saying it. Yeah. But it's also like so clinical. <laughs> it's like. Also, did you learn nothing from Zoe and Liz. oh, what's her face? Oh, um, um, oh, yeah, I know you're on the one from the invasion. Um, yeah, did you learn nothing from that, Isabel? <laughs> yeah, make a sexist comment that the women stay safely behind. It doesn't go well for you, dude. Like, just, just don't. <laughs> I love you, but like, stop mm. that. <laughs> He might as well have just said it. Dicks to the front, wombs to the back. <laughs> um, yeah, like like I have a dare. Like you know, you need to work on your phrasing. Um, like I lo- like I love action brig, but I think there's one thing I love just a small bit more, or just as much, exasperated brig. Because <laughs> Nick Courtney's, exasperated brig is good. <laughs> Nick Nick Courtney's face is just like 
oh it's priceless but also as well like it's in my head now that you know you know when he's trying to call the eights at the end mm. of episode three it's like he's getting he calls him like, Mike. Yeah, he calls he calls him Mike. Like he's getting like some sort of like you know post traumatic you know flashbacks to whatever happened to Jimmy. Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh. Like somewhere out there, there's gonna be like a book that fully explains what happened to Jimmy, and you and yeah. I would rag yeah. the whole time. <laughs> uh, also, running on the spot break is hilarious. That's, that, that whole like slow down sequence was so yeah. funny. Um, one interaction I would have loved to have seen. Mm-hmm. We didn't get the break and baby Benton. Oh, that was so good. Do you know? Like, yeah. can you imagine? Like, I sort of have this thing in my head. I don't know why, but like, I think it's, I'd love to see it. That like, say, um. Stuart and Ruth managed to fix the machine in the sense of the guys outside were no longer yeah. slow down. And the brig comes in and it, like, he sort of looks down and you know, they explain that sort of like, why did you leave him on the floor? <laughs> and that the brig just sort of picks him up and sort of completely passively like, you know, not even making a big thing of it, is just like, you're letting him suck on his finger or something like that. Just being perfect like, mm. dad. <laughs> Without even noticing. And then he puts, you know, obviously Benton changes back later on. And, you know, the brigadier and him to sort of share a look of, what do you remember? <laughs> I remember weird shit. Yeah. Never mentioned it again. Let's just never mention it. I would have loved, like, you know, if, like, you know, the brigadier, like, picks him up, like, that awkward, like, hold him out type thing. And then Benton just grows back to normal. And, like, you like, break has his, like, hands under his armpits. <laughs> or, like... There is, I'll get to it in my overall, but there's a bit of a, a feminist. It's one, I, I love Barry, but he actually can't do the feminist, feminist storyline very well. Right no, now. he really can't. He tries and he just fails. Um, yeah. But there is a bit of a feminist thing going through this story a bit. Mm. And I would have loved if like, you know, again, he comes in, there's baby Benton or whatever. And say Ruth is just like completely failing at taking care of the child in any way shape or form and she's just like look i have to fix the machine hmm. you take care of him yeah. and again we see the brigadier being actually quite good at it so <laughs> 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 yeah i i don't i just i i think i think they missed a trick there by having the brig and baby benton hmm. now before we go on to adult benton i put yeah. in yates here not because he did anything you know he had any great contributions to the story but Right. Uh, to be short and sweet, right? I think he's a fucking pillock in this story. I have be- one line. Yeah. Yates, you utter fucking waste of space. So, with the knight on the on the road, he could have just stopped the convoy. But instead, he had every single truck swerve, got them stuck in the mud, and then he acted so very cavalier about the whole thing. Oh, like some guy dressed up as a knight and doing the whole... You know, the, the Arthur King Arthur bit. bit. Yeah, I'm like... Also, like, it's a dude on a horse running in a straight line. Hmm. Did you need to crash them all and get them all stuck in the mud? Just veer ever so slightly around him. <laughs> the other thing then is they're being attacked by the, the roundhead troops. And it's like they're using matchlock muskets and they're using old-style cannon. And I was like going, 
all it takes is one unit troop to fire their fucking machine gun over their heads and they will scatter. They will yeah. run. The unit troops in that particular encounter were like the you know stormtrooper can't aim for mm. shit thing. Yeah, no, this is like hold on, you're going up against guys from what the seventeen hundreds? No, like? no sixteen. Sixteen hundreds? Yeah. You're going against with modern machine guns. And you yeah. can't take out a single one of them? Hmm. Like, what the shit? Yeah, it, it was just... it Like, this was a really, really bad kind of showing of Yates. And it's like... I know like, that we, like we, we, we... Our opinion of Yates is very well known. But this was just like something else. This was a contractual obligation, I think. Yeah, this ate up so much time, and it and it he's written horribly. He, he's, he's written, he's written badly. Yeah. In fairness, it's in line with the way he's been up to now, though, for the most part. But he's even like like he's had like a lot more of a showing. Like I like I haven't seen Yates be incompetent yet. No, but I've seen him be um, tonally off. Put that way. Yeah, oh yeah, no, totally off Jesus, yeah, he's tone deaf, completely tone deaf. Yeah. But I've never seen him be incompetent in mil- in a military capacity yet. Which mm, is what we have here. Leaving the helicopter door unlocked. So that anyone can steal it. That, that's just fucking being an idiot, like. Which is military, I would call that military incompetence. True, okay. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the time that was spent on Yates in the story, maybe it was a contractual thing, you know, maybe they had to have Yates in another story pa- for contract possibly. reasons. Maybe they thought, like, oh, we can't have the rest of the unit and not have Yates. Hmm. But I just think it was a fucking waste of space. I think the time would have been spent elsewhere. Yeah. No, I agree completely. You could have had any other random unit soldier in that exact same position and it would have changed. They, they really didn't even need to do it. They, 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 because, like, if you think about it, the Tom it, Tate... It was so much filler. It yeah, wasn't really necessary. Like the, the Tom Tate machine was solely for the purpose of drawing out Kronos, yet it's being used to bring... Almost like the war games. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was weird. Right. Moving on to better things. Benton. <laughs> oh, I Benton. Lo- I love Benton in the story. I really do. He's a good soldier. He is a good soldier. But those good instincts get him into trouble. <laughs> like, I love the fact that the brigadier was like, no, Benton's in charge. Hmm. That's it. I love the fact that, like... Th- you would imagine the brigadier would have sent Benton to investigate and he would have stayed yeah. behind. But because the brigadier is such a lead from the front type person, yeah. but he has no problem leaving Benton in charge. Which is great. I also love how Benton's like, you know, the brigadier would never call a sergeant. My dear fellow. My dear fellow. <laughs> yeah. I I love that. That was brilliant. But I think, like, I, I like that and the fact that he's got, like, the, um, you know, the, the the forethought to I'll just leave the I'll leave the window open here because this seems kind of fishy. That's great. Um, I don't know that was I wouldn't say call that forethought. That was his plan. Well, was, no, but, I will go out and around and come back in. Yeah, but no. What I mean is in the sense of like coupled with the fact that he realized that something was going on, rather mm-hmm. than try and confront the master yeah. in the office or, or walk into a trap, he laid a trap himself. Yeah. 
Um, I really enjoyed that, and like I just love his dialogue as well. You know, it doesn't change the fact that you're brought in the soup without a ladle. Oh, <laughs> like I, I love that dialogue. Um, I think Benton is a very good everyman, hmm. and I think we've kind of, I think, I think Doctor Who's guy struggles with the everyman character. He struggles hmm. with the every woman character as well. Hmm. Um, but like the everyman that like you know the guys at home are like I'm I'm him. Yeah, I'm him, and and Benton is that, and Benton is that character in a very believable way. Oh yeah, like I'm you know, com- he has his kind of, I wouldn't say dumb moments. But he has his like, what the fuck is this moments? Yeah. But he's also like you know, oh, well, there's the gap between now that, and that, now. That's my that's <laughs> that's my favorite part of this uh, story for Benton is the fact that in this room of scientists, he is the only one that grasps the concept of the experiment. Yeah, and the fact that like the brig refers back to it later. Well, as Benton explained, <laughs> it's um, between now and now. Yeah. But I, also, I'm a complete Benton. I am. I am Benton. You, you are. You are. Yeah. We, what, we've kind of joked over the years outside yeah. of the podcast about like which Doctor Who character are you? You're, yeah. You're Benton. Yeah, I'm, I, I I wear it proudly. Yeah, we've, we've joked about you being like some of the others, but no, you are. Hmm. You are Benton. I hope I get to meet John Levine at some point. Oh, he's great. Yeah. He's so nice. He's all smiles. Uh, cool. So the prominent characters. We have Root, Stu, Dalios, and Kronos. Let's do them in that order, so. Yeah. Um, if I was Ruth, I would have decked one of those fuckers by now. Hmm. Seriously. Sexist, patronizing asshole of a lot of them. And she's stuck dealing with them all day. Hmm. Like... She's clearly very intelligent. She's strong-willed. She knows her own mind. But, like, she has to deal with such bullshit every day. And, like, Stu... Like, she seems to have a good relationship with Stu. Mm. But he also rags on her for being a girl. Yeah. But see, I... Whereas... This is the thing now, right? Is that... And to your point about how Barry doesn't really write feminine, I don't know whether it's feminine, feminism, or feminists really well. Either. Yeah, like. Well, he write well. Writing feminism really well mm. isn't that hard. No. Just write the women the same way you write the men. Yeah. Writing feminists and touching on feminist ideas that's where he fails yeah because there there are there are points here where Roosh, who is in the right is written as a i would say like as a slightly unlikable character mm. but she is in the right yeah. and that, like that's like i was confused because i was like because of that like because i feel like at times like wait well Roosh should technically be a companion but then again she's not really with the doctor and the guys as much as everyone else's no. for the story. So she would go into prominent character. The reason that Benton is there is because Benton is just a companion by the default yeah, because he's awesome. But like, and as well, like there's, it would, the thing with Stu is that um, he, he like Stu respects her as an academic. He respects mm. her acumen. But I think he, he, he uses like or he, yeah he rags on the fact that other people don't respect her and like yeah. 
that, that that you don't want to be getting it from two sides, no matter how well intentioned one of those sides may be. Yeah, it, it's kind. Of, I sort of imagine it's this thing as like, you know, he's the junior research fellow. Hmm. Do you know she's the doctor? He's just the postgraduate student, or whatever. Um, so I imagine separately they have this little banter around hmm. her being the woman in charge. It's hmm. a bit of banter between them. Hmm. But like when she's getting it in an overly negative way yeah. from other people, mm-hmm. that's where the banter needs to stop. Yeah, you know, hey, you're doing this as well, and I know you and I have this joke, but I'm actually getting fucking sick of this now. Yeah, um, this needs to stop. And I love the fact that she, you know, continues throughout the story just being her own person. Mm. Do you know, and she continues to do her work on the experiment. You know, she's still like, this is still my project. I can figure this out. Yeah. And like, I think one of those points where she comes across as slightly unlikable is right after the break and all the guys have been frozen outside, you have this sort of three-way argument between Benton and Stu and Root. Mm. Like which Benton saying we shouldn't touch it without the doctor's help. Mm. Then him giving out to Stu over the fact that he let the master get away. Mm. And then Root being saying, you sound like a bunch of cackling women. And then she, like, then she, when Benton tells her to turn it off, she's like, oh, finally, a man makes a decision type thing. Yeah. But, like, the way I feel like the character is meant to be is that she should be more assertive. Because, like, the the whole time she's been saying that she has as much input on this thing as possible and i feel like that someone that has been saying that in private to stew at this like you know very serious juncture should say it out loud and should like yeah. you know sergeant this is my baby let me do my thing rather than like passive aggressively comment on the fact that she's told benton to let her do it yeah like there's a whole idea of like because it's not fair on benton either no do you know like benton is handling the situation as well as he can. Yeah. He has very legitimate concerns around mm. what happens if something goes wrong. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's like, yeah, we should wait for the doctor. And, yeah, I see her pressing her point that, like, it's her experiment and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But there's no need to be like, and finally, the man yeah. makes a fucking decision. Yeah. Like, and it's like, don't, don't be like that. Like, that's, that's unnecessary mm. in that situation. Mm. That's and like another, an otherwise likable supportive character is unlikable. And yeah, that's and that's the, where it's very much like this is a gross generalization. Just mm. saying this now. Mm-hmm. No one at me about yeah. this. When you have stories that try to show strong women. Mm-hmm. This is the failure that crops up. Yeah. If you don't write them well, you have women appearing strong only by belittling and passively aggressively demeaning the men around them. Mm. And sometimes in a story that's warranted. In this case, when you're dealing with a character like Benton, who is a very respectful person in general, mm. and who's just trying to do his job, 
it is not needed. It just makes you not like her. And it sort of becomes then like, you know, if we think about it in the modern context of like, you know, feminist characters and feminist movies and what have you, that's the personification that hmm. when it crops up in things like, I don't know, Ghostbusters or Charlie's Angels, people react negatively to it because that's not the way women really are. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, that's not the way people usually respond to that situation. If they're a nice person, if they're a dickhead, then yeah, and there's dickheads of both of both genders. But like, I think it's also what happens with men trying to write strong women. Mm. No, some, they think no. that being a strong woman means that you're a bitch. Mm. No, sometimes to be fair, like you know, like like men do write very strong women characters. Like, oh yeah, yeah, oh, it's, like, a, it's a gross generalization. Yeah, oh, yeah, but yeah like, absolutely. But like, do, do what I would do what I would be very curious to see. Hmm. What Benton's reaction would have been like if this was if the villain of the piece was an Earth-based scientist, not the master? Yeah, but do you know what I would have liked to see? Oh. Right. So this place is near Cambridge. Mm-hmm. What if that had been Liz? Hmm. If that had been Liz Shaw? Yeah. Because Liz, I still firmly believe, was an amazingly well-written character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she needs to stand up for herself in terms of she's Doctor Elizabeth Shaw. But other than that, like Liz never had to show how intelligent she was and mm. how strong she was as an individual, never mind as a woman, by making demeaning, somewhat callous statements like Ruth did. Yeah. No, no, I agree. Yeah. But like my thing was just like that because it's the master, the doctor or Benton knows that the doctor is like on par with the master, so he probably mm. the best person to figure out what it is. If Liz had been in that situation, if Liz had been left behind, mm. then he would defer to Liz because Liz was the doctor's companion, you know? Yeah, or he still may have had the same argument of, I don't think you should, you know, mm. I was left in charge, yeah. wait for the doctor. But when she was like, no, Sergeant, I'm doing it, and he concedes, she would just get, she'd just get to it. So she wouldn't yeah. make a thing of it, of, well, hmm, yeah, see, if you just listen to me now, a while ago. Oh, I really wish not. No, devil, I want to listen to this story. Damn it. <laughs> Stuart. Yes. Um, if this was a horror movie, I feel like Stu would be the first one to die. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the poor fucker, like, he's the type of guy who is all bluster mm. to hide his self-described cowardice. Mm. Oh, yeah. He he said, he didn't he say he's a card-carrying coward? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And again... It's this thing of Stuart to me comes across as in some respects the quote unquote nice guy. Yeah. Do you know? So like he's the one who's like, you know, hey, maybe we should test it and like, you know, he's being weird. And so when Ruth agrees, yeah, we should. Let's Hmm. run the test. Good decision. Away we go. And when the master is ragging on her for it, Stuart sort of tries to be the gallant hero hmm. of, well, I was the one, like, you were the junior research fellow in this situation. Yeah. It didn't matter if you had done a dance and, you know, prayed to the gods for help or whatever. It was her choice to run it. Hmm. Respect her authority in that room by allowing her to take the blame for something that was her choice. Yeah. 
you know, like he didn't have a choice in running the experiment. He but, he made a suggestion. Yeah, because like, like at first he tries to kind of say like, "Hey, I like you like." Like, you know, her nibs is the one that's in charge here but and then he kind yeah. of goes but i was the one that suggested it and it's like yeah he kind of like because of this weird sort of dynamic they have and like said the yeah. the jokes about you know her being a woman or whatever the fact that he calls her her nibs or whatever yeah. um like that's fine between the two of them mm-hmm. but then him jumping me like oh well it was my it was my idea it's like undermining her authority yeah when she's already getting laced into, partially because she's a woman, <laughs> Do you know, like the master made that very fucking clear. Do you know that? You know what was this woman doing? You know whatever. So, I think uh, my overall sense about Stuart is just poor fucker. Like he also reminds know? me of what Shaggy from Scooby Doo would be look like if he became a scientist. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that. This is what happens when uh, Velma and uh, Shaggy leave the the mystery gang. Mm. So, Dalios. Dalos? That was Dalios. D-A-I or D-A-L-I? D-A-L-I. Why do I have D-A-I? Okay. Anyway, yes, him. Yeah. Um, I love how he plays the master. How he's just so easily sees through. It's brilliant. The game the master right. is trying to play. Tell me, what did Neptune have for breakfast this morning? And what of Lord Zeus? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. Which is funny when you think about, like, if you think back to the myth makers hmm. and how they thought the doctor was yeah. Zeus. And here you have a very learned man, hmm. do you know? Who literally sees this total chancer yeah. strolling in and is like, well, fuck you. <laughs> like, I'm not a fucking moron. <laughs> oh, or like when the master tries to hypnotize him and he's like a very, was it, you know, amateur technique or something yeah. like that. Oh, it was so it, good. so good. I do wonder, hmm. but I was wondering for most of the story. Um, and again, this might come back in the future. I do wonder... If he was a time lord, because he's over five hundred years old. Yeah, and now obviously he dies at the end, so yeah. no regeneration. But I did wonder as we were going through, is he a time lord? Is he there to keep Kronos captive? Well, see, okay, you you just said something there, like you know he you know he dies with no regeneration. But, well, no regeneration that we see. Yeah, because like I have a pin stuck at a point from the war games, which is we see the war chief die, knowing mm. that he's a time lord and no regeneration. So yeah. uh, we'll go on with that. But um, yes, yes, and, like his his long life isn't explained. And now oh. is it because like he's custodian of the crystal? Does he have a piece of piece of the crystal on him? Was he made from the crystal? We don't know. No, when, I, I sort of like the idea though of him being. A time lord who helped mm. trap Kronos in this well thing or whatever, the, and it's his job to protect us. Well, there's another thing as well. Like he said that uh, the Minotaur was a friend of mm. his who Kronos transformed based on the two wishes of having the strength of a bull and long life in which to use it. Mm. So maybe he also wished for something along those lines, and the long life is also his curse. 
Yeah. I do also wonder if he was meant to be um like Daedalus. Possibly. Um because obviously they have the Minotaur hmm. who in Greek mythology is at the heart of the labyrinth. Yeah. So I was kind of surprised we didn't have Daedalus <laughs> there, <laughs> you know, it's like uh also fucking Kudos to the doctor for karate chopping the Minotaur as he as he fucking charged him. Jesus Christ! Yeah, I mean, this is the second Minotaur we've seen. It was the first time the doctor has faced the Minotaur, mm. the actual, yeah, Minotaur. Like, mm. um, but yeah, I I like Delos. I I think I would have liked to have seen like him being a Time Lord or, mm. you know, some other like I would have liked an explanation of how he lived yeah. for five hundred years. Beyond Kronos blessed him with long life. Yeah. I kind of or assumed that was like a or cursed him with long life. I kind of assumed that was meant to be a sort of allegory for something else. Like it, it was a story to describe mm. something more complex. Mm. Um, but yeah. I I don't like the fact though that he died feeling betrayed and, heart, and heartbroken. No. And like. Again, going back to those comparisons I made earlier of the city elder in the colony in space and the, no, not the first elder in the sense, right? It's more so the second elder. Mm. But like, they both died in circumstances where they were, no, in sense, rights, It's clear he's betrayed by his own people, the city yeah. administrator. And there was my own personal kind of head thought into the city elder that he committed his race to die because of the fact that they had gotten away from the ideals of their society or whatever it was mm. but like it's when those characters die it adds like a a bit of an emotional punch to the story i think yeah and i'll get i'll get more into my feelings on that when we get into the overall because i do mm. have i do have some thoughts on the emotional punch of that mm. um but overall i liked him as a character yeah, i would oh, have he... liked to have understood more about him hmm. and also like his relationship with Galia like he's over 500 years old AJ nothing but a number yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, true I, but like no. clearly like there is clearly affection between them so that that comes into my points for Galia like because it's a it's a strange thing and Maybe we might leave that to when we talk about actually Galea herself. Yeah. Okay. So before we have Galea, we have Kronos. Kronos, who isn't like a 500 foot tall titan. Nope. Or a golden douchebag. <laughs> nope. We have two versions of Kronos. We have the Cronovore bird hoplite thing. Mm. And then we have the big floating head yeah. now I get what they were going for in terms of the first form but I yeah. do agree with was it Robert Sloman yeah. I do agree that it should have been indistinct or something yeah. something that when it appeared didn't look so bad because like, something I think that could have fixed it a bit hmm is this is gonna sound so bizarre, but when I was watching the movements, right? Is making his legs more rigid. Hmm. Yeah. And 
doing some sort of manipulation of either the footage or doing more with the suit where it's not just a guy flapping his hands Mm. that there are more deliberate movements that have weight to them yeah because that's like that's the biggest problem i thought was his legs kind of knocking about the place and his arms just flapping rather than these big movements with you know impact to them if that makes sense no no I, i i completely agree because in the sequence where he's trapped inside the testing room he does look like a budgie that has just been gotten, you know, caught yeah. behind a curtain. And when I feel like this all-powerful thing should look as a bit more majestic in its fury. So having the, yeah. Yeah, having the legs locked and having, like, the wings, if even if they want to just batter from side to side, but having the wings, like, hurricane-type wings. Yeah. Um, because, now I know that we've, we've often said, and again, justifiably so, I think, that good writing helps make mm. up for or you know good writing and good characters helps make up for like the, the production values at the time unfortunately this is one of those things that just took away from the 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 esteem of the character that they were trying to portray i think i think i know why as well why because the character is completely silent yeah all we have to go on mm. is the body movement yeah like if you think about from say the web planet Mm. right the monoptera and um the other ones the the ones uh, underground the optera yeah the optera the monoptera yeah their outfits were ridiculous (laughs) but you believed in the character because of the acting yeah because of the way the character was portrayed by the actor as i said the ones that used to just hop around on their own yeah looked silly but the ones that our characters were actually interacting with and talking to, you forgot about how silly they looked. Like again, like I just like because I think that was a point that we brought up was like I quite enjoyed the Monoptera. And oh, like, me too. Yeah, and and uh, the Optera were a small bit. Yeah, like they were a small bit silly, but again, like it was like the acting, the, everything was so committed that it was like I I was invested in it. I wasn't like being the taken one, away from the it. ones that were silent and just hopping up the steps. Yeah looked a bit ridiculous but when they're engaged in conversation yeah it's different or like if you think the minotaur right the minotaur isn't the character we're discussing we might as well cover that here as well Mm. so the minotaur was fine all credit to david prowse Mm -hmm. the minotaur was fine but we've heard the minotaur from this story to what's his face from um the demons azal or no sorry azal no no No, azal Azal, okay. Azal. To Azal from the Demons, who mm. also had a very sort of, you know, he had a goat-like physique mm-hmm. and whatever. The reason why it worked so well in the Demons is that the character spoke. Yeah. And had gravitas in the voice mm-hmm. that helped sell it. Whereas here, you have David Prowse with a bulging <laughs> on his head, <laughs> just running from side yeah. to side on a set and again had that been outdoors where you don't have the sound of the set floor it may yeah. have worked better yeah. as well so that's when they record like, I said a little bit about that it's like when the characters are silent you yeah. need to consider more about yeah. how you present them because you don't have the actor's performance 
as much to carry it through. You don't have the voice to, yeah. No. Like, and that's actually a good point because talk about Bach. Bach again could have been ridiculous, except for the fact that the person portraying him genuinely made him creepy with his movements. Yeah, and like he tried really hard. Yeah. To do that. Now there were still some moments where he was silly. Yeah. The like tongue sticking out was yeah. random, <laughs> but more often than not, he tried to work it in. Whereas when you've got big fucking flappy wing things and you're told to flap like a bird, you flap like a bird. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, flapping like an eagle, do you mm. know, in a slow, deliberate movement that has yeah. weight behind it. You know, you want to be a Pidgeotto, not a Pidgey. Yeah, exactly. But then to Cronus' second form. Um, the giant face. Yeah, the, the big giant head. Like... I I liked that char- characterization. So did I. I like I liked the idea of this character very much, mm-hmm. and I I love the whole thing of oh like you know, stop his tardis from escaping. Yeah. You asked me to set him free, and I did, and I did, and he's again going back to that story that Dalias told about how the Minotaur came about and how yeah. he got his long life. It was a request mm-hmm. that was granted. Yes. In a very sort of genie, three wishes kind of way of... Be careful of, what you wish for type thing. Be careful what you wish for and be fucking specific. <laughs> yeah, more, more, like a, more like a monkey's paw than a you know, genie. Yeah, I, I, the genie I'm thinking of, I don't know why I went with that, is um, there's an episode of the X-Files hmm. where there's a very, a very uh, specific genie. Yeah. <laughs> She's just very like, well, you said peace yeah. on earth. Yeah. So I got rid of everybody. <laughs> um, but like, I love the thing that you know, it's like I'm neither life giver nor destroyer. Good, I'm beyond evil. I'm beyond evil and good in your comprehension. And like, even though she's smiling at them, there is this like sense of she could turn on them just as like on a dime, you know. Well, you also get the sense of like this is like Amusing. she's talking to ants. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like from her perspective, she's talking to ants. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah that's I mean, it's amusing for her. They are so beneath her; it's not even funny. And like, I also think, like you know, the whole thing is as well as that. It, it we talked before about um, you mentioned earlier about the doctor being like a semi enlightened being or whatever. Mm. You know, I love when we see characters like this because, especially for the you know, for the doctor. Mm. is that in terms of intelligence and understanding of the universe there's always a bigger fish mm. and here we ha- uh, go on sorry no no because like there are i think i don't know if they're the same now but um way 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 forward in the ninth doctor's time like the the reapers or the ravagers mm. or the reapers i think you get the impression that they're meant to be the same as the chronovores but after this you wouldn't think so. No. I just got this weird image in my head. Hmm. Um, the idea of like just the giant face. Yeah. <laughs> in space. Do you remember that episode of Next Generation where there was this being that like wanted to see how the crew of the Enterprise reacted to different things. And so he was just using them as lab rats. Yeah. I just have this giant like was it this very like, weird looking face yeah it was like the face and the, the, the kind of like the mouth and the tongue and like this weird green 
missed yeah yeah i was so i don't know why that just came into my head there. i think it was what i saw but like how far beneath her they are except the difference there is that that character was using the humans as lab rats whereas you get that chronos doesn't do that like no. so she's neither good nor evil she just is yeah so he's like, like probably the most neutral of all neutral entities. Like, <laughs> oh. so we now have the villains of the piece, which are the master and mm. Gal- Galea. So I think, Galea. I think we should maybe talk about her first. Yeah. Now, this joke won't. No one other than you may probably get it, but like, she is really Tits McGee. She is Tits McGee. I don't think I've ever seen who push no. more of a something for the fucking dads no. <laughs> than no. this woman's outfit. Yeah, because like they're really hey there, look at these. Um, but like you can't not like. <laughs> no. But to be fair to uh, Ingrid, she because uh, I actually looked up about her. Uh, I just lost the point. She's a Holocaust survivor. I didn't know that. Yep, she was in, I can't remember which camp, but she was in there with her parents and she managed to survive. So, yeah, I know. Fucking creepy. Um, And then to go and look into her eagles there and play like um, a fucking resistance member against the Nazis is like a subtle form of revenge. Mm. But, um, like, so she is of Polish descent or Eastern European descent. Mm. But, like, so... I suppose in a, for me like in a broad spectrum actresses that are from like that side of the thing they just have like this very sultry uh, that side of the world they have this very sultry demeanor about them yeah. and she like exudes it here and even though yeah you couldn't say like okay like she's tits McGee or something for the dads she's a very interesting character she reminds me a lot she's like a cross between two characters for me hmm. Persephone from the Matrix oh yeah that's a good one and the Empress from the Romans yeah Octavia, I think. Yeah, whatever yeah. her name was. Yeah. Um, you're one who was trying to kill Barbara. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she's kind of takes the Sorry, two Pompeia, Pompeia, Pompeia. That was it. She kind of takes the two aspects of those characters. De- definitely. Because the way she immediately sort of latches onto the master is very much Persephone and Neo. Yeah. But then her thirst, her thirst for power, is very much like Pompeia. Yeah. What she has that neither of them had is, I don't think there's any love romantically between her and Dalias. I really don't think there is. But there is clearly an affection there. Yeah, like, and it's, see, this was the thing where, like, I was like, it's a legitimately weird character for me. Because, Mm -hmm. like, on one hand, uh, like, she wants to seem to have, like, a bedmate to share power with but yeah. she's obviously on top giggity uh, <laughs> but then on the flip side of things like there is some level of affection for Dalios to the extent that his death causes her to completely 180 on everything and have the master oh, yeah. arrested like I think like we kind of get the sense from or oh, what's his name the boy with the long hair uh, Hippias who Hippias, that's right. like his death like we didn't really touch on it. It's actually kind of brutal given the context of like he gets like picked up full hoisted above the minotaur's mm. head and thrown head first through one of those mirrored walls. Yeah. Like it's 
pretty fucking intense, like I think. Yeah. But anyway, and those yeah. weird walls kind of lead in again to the whole labyrinth. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Um, but the thing with Galia is that like so we find out from him that like she used to be a nicer person. Hmm. Do you know before she was queen, she was a nice person. And you kind of get the sense that like she was either married off to Dalius or whatever. Um but I kind of get the sense from her that like she is a trophy wife. Yeah. She doesn't want to be. No. So she wants to have power herself. But everyone defers to Dalius because he's the leader and the king and the elder. And like I said, while I don't think there's any romantic relationship between the two of them, because obviously she has extra partners on the side. Mm -hmm. I do think she there is a clear affection for him. And I think in a kind of perverse way, that affection is maybe the affection you would more closely associate with like a parent. Yeah. Or an elder family, like an uncle or something like that, as well as a revered elder. So she thinks that he's too old to be king mm -hmm. and she wants the power, but he should still be revered and respected for the man that he is. Mm. And like, it's curious because like he, like his, like one of his dying words is like my Galea. So like, again, I, we don't get a proper insight as to like his view on her. Like, you know, does he yeah. love her romantically or is it just that same level of affection returned? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a comparison for their relationship, and I'm kind of struggling to come up with one. So, while you're struggling with that, I'll give you something else to struggle with potentially. Mm. Does is Galea is she a villain, or is she a mm. prominent character? I I put Galea as a prominent character because her whole thing is the master is power. Mm. And has the power of over Kronos. And bear in mind, I get the point that she doesn't know the whole story around the Kronos thing. No. She knows what Dallas has been telling for years. Mm -hmm. Not the truth behind the matter. Yeah. But like the fact that she's so like because she says at the beginning, like, you know, don't kill him. You mm -hmm. know, he'll retire. Yeah. He'll step aside. Mm -hmm. I'll remain queen. Yeah. And you will Advise be there me, to support yeah. me. Yeah. Um, she's very much in favor of that, and the fact that, like, when she finds out that the master turned back on his word and killed him, she loses her fucking shit. Mm. Like she has him arrested, and then, like, when things are going to shit and the temple or the palace is being destroyed, she lets the, the doctor go to. No, whether did she let him go to get revenge and hunt down the mm. master? Did she let him go just because it was like, what's the point in fucking letting him die, or mm. or what was it? But yeah, see, that's the thing. Like, I put her into the the villains thing, but the minute I put her in there, I was like, I don't know whether she should be in here fully. No, so I think yeah. she's no more a villain than Kronos is. Yeah. So yeah. So I okay, we we agree that she's a prominent character more so yeah. than a villain. Yeah, um, I, I can't come up with a good comparative relationship for her relationship with Dallas. I was trying to, but there's none coming to mind. No. Um, but, yeah, again, I'll talk about overall about, you know, his, his death and that line, you know, because um, it hits hard 
but I don't think it hits it as, as hard as it could. No, it doesn't. And uh, I'll talk about that more in, in my overall. Cool. So how about we go on to the actual villain, so the master. Time to call in somebody else to help me get power. And they turn <laughs> on me. Oh no. Oh no. Um dude. He he is like he is the definition of insanity. He he is He really is like <laughs> I will say one thing though. What? I'm not a big fan. Mm-hmm. And neither was my mother of his full black suit. Outfit. Yeah, right. Roger Gardner apparently loved it. Mm. I'm not the biggest fan. Mm-hmm. However, the master in a suit mm-hmm. with his top button undone <laughs> and his tie kind of pulled loose, yeah, it's kind of sexy. <laughs> <laughs> like I was looking at him, kind of going. Hey Roger, like yeah. it's kind of sexy. He looks a lot more comfortable in it. I thought. He, I think that's it. I think because the master is usually so buttoned up, literally. <laughs> he he looks like an evil dentist in his normal clothes. <laughs> yeah, he looks like fucking you know, he's who Snape modeled his outfit on. Do you know? <laughs> Why must you turn my office into a house of lies? <laughs> but like. When he was in that relaxed looking thing where he was clearly working on a problem, there's some, there something about it, to be honest. Like, I just think like he, like, like Roger Delgado looked more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And in yeah. my mind, that made him hotter. Hotter, yeah. Jesus, thank Christ, we didn't see him climb up a ladder. He'd be swooning all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> but see, now I kind of want Ian to have like, um, you know, I wish we had Ian with like, this, we did get Ian the gladiator iteration complaint. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to complain. Anyway, moving on. He looks kind of sexy, is what I want. Um, but he is the fucking definition of insanity. Mm. Not only is he the definition of insanity, but like, he. I don't even know how to describe it. Like, Roger is so good, but the master is such a fucking moron. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing, like, and it was like this and the demons yeah i would say like they're very similar in concept mm. because you're pulling an an other world entity yeah out like whereas like you know with terror of the autons and the sea devils uh you're using an existing race as such yeah you're not calling powers beyond your comprehension of mortal man type mm. thing whereas here he does it's more or less the exact same thing. I feel like that Roger's his performances are better in those particular types of stories when he's trying to call the the unknown. Yeah. I, I, like, just, I Roger, think it's a better performance. But Roger plays it really well. Yeah, like, in Firestone, like he he he's fantastic here. Although um and I I would say as well, the master's got game. He really does. The way that he kind of like schmoozes with Galea of like I'm expect I'm expecting a bit of a passionate kiss here, or some sort of a kiss, something. Mm. Um, but if he did, yeah, he's one of those guys that wouldn't call you anymore afterwards. He'd just get what he wants and he'd be gone. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that I this one in particular really rang true mm. is that 
you know, we sort of see the the master and the doctor have this sort of very brotherly relationship, you know, a sort of Holmes and Moriarty type thing. Hmm. And the sense that, like, you know, they work well together. Hmm. Do you know? And we have seen the master, even though I, I didn't like at the time, you know, help the doctor when the master's plan goes to shit. Um, help the doctor fix it. Right? I'd say maybe, um, I'd say uh, Holmes and Moriarty is probably the wrong one, seeing as how I, I'm pretty sure Moriarty just wants to kill him. I, I Maybe a Professor X Magneto thing might be a bit more... Yeah, that. Uh, the, the Holmes and Moriarty thing more so from... Um, Sherlock. Moffat's Sherlock. Yeah. Actually, let's not get into that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I prefer to think of Guy I'm Ritchie. regretting my choice now. Yeah. I prefer to think of Guy Ritchie's um, uh, Moriarty playing yeah. J- Jared Harris. But, like, the thing here that I really see that I hadn't really seen up to this point is like, my first introduction to the Master was in Tenant's run. Yeah. And the Johnson Master, who's unhinged. Hmm. And when we get to that, we'll go into the details of, of why that is or whatever. Mm. And obviously with, you know, you then had Missy, who I didn't watch a lot of. And mm. now we've got Sasha Dewan as the master, who again is so fucking mm. unhinged is the only way to describe it. But in this one, I think it really comes true because there's a, we've seen the way that he will pair up with the doctor. But here he expelled the doctor into the fucking ether. Mm-hmm. And then... He's left with Joe. Yeah. And I kind of got the feeling, you know, in the first few stories, like if we were taking the master from the first few stories, I would have gotten the sense that he would have actually let Joe go. Yeah. Do you know? And I thought that was what was going to happen. I thought he was going to take her to Atlantis with him. Mm-hmm. That he would save her. Yeah. But he doesn't. No. And he cackles like a loony mm-hmm. while basically saying, you're going to fucking die. Do you know? Because like, he has that moment earlier where he's like, I'm sorry for your coccyx too. Yeah. Which is, which is so funny. <laughs> but like, I was expecting him to save her. And then he didn't. And he went to all like maniacal laugh. And I was like, oh, there's that thread. Yeah. The future masters kind of pick up on it's like i hadn't really seen it like he was insanity by repeating himself over and over again but there you actually see the sort of unhinged aspect of him i think yeah no definitely i'd agree but um like the only other thing i was like when i mentioned like that the doctor is very much like professor xavier um magnet or sorry the master here is not quite like magneto because with with Professor Xavier and Magneto, it's a difference in ideologies mm. that neither of them really want the other one to die or to suffer. However, no. more so with Magneto, if you get in my way, I'm not responsible for what happens to you. Mm. Whereas the master here is like, he's deliberately celebrating in the what he perceives to be the death of the doctor. And like... At that point, then, you know, the doctor comes on screen. He can hear what's being said about him. It's like, why do you repeatedly, repeatedly give this guy the benefit of the doubt? And, mm. but yeah, it's just like, it, it get like, as much as I do love Roger, it gets a bit old. Like, yeah. I, like, I, for once, I just want to see him try and conquer the universe on his own merits. Because, yeah. 
like we like we're told like they're meant to be like you know an equal match for the doctor, a rival. Mm. But and he claims to be like the superior one. Yeah, but why? If he's the superior one, why does he always need help? Yeah, I think this is the only story we've had him in where he didn't ask for the doctor's help. Yes, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So that that was one small change. But instead, he needed Professor, or he needed Ruth to be his helper, and he needed her experiments. Also, he's shite at keeping up a fucking disguise. Like at the start of the story, like you know, he's meant to be like this Greek doctor, and like he has a Greek accent for like two mm. minutes. Yeah. Then he then he drops it, and no one kind of goes, "Hang on a sec, there, no." <laughs> <laughs> He he was channeling another Magneto, who can't hold an accent either. <laughs> don't, don't you bring Fassbender into this? Don't, don't you dare besmirch my fucking county man, <laughs> who yeah, can hold his accent, <laughs> which is fucking bizarre. Like because like uh, his dad, uh, yeah, his dad is German, so he grew up like with a very strong German accent presence in the household. You know, so surely you know you can put the carry away for a bit. <laughs> can you? Well, yeah, until I go home for a bit. <laughs> I What's like... Ruth's name? Ruth Ingram. What's her name? Ruth Ingram. <laughs> Still the rest of the good? Sorry, I didn't receive pronoun- it wasn't pronounced <laughs> or whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> um... <laughs> Shush. <laughs> Uh, you didn't get elocution lessons? No, we didn't. Yeah, no, this is our thing now. Like, so I'm the root in this Instagram, I think in this version, and you're Stu fucking bullying me <laughs> over my lack of elocution. So we have, despite my lack of <laughs> received pronunciation, <laughs> definitely didn't look up that phrase. Um, or the ability just to say words that have a th in them. Absolutely. Uh, we have reached the final section of the podcast, the overall, where we give our scores out of five each. Mm. So Trish, over to you first. What did you think of the time monster? The story, oh. not the effect. <laughs> <laughs> The effect was a bit shit. Uh, the story as a whole, I overall, I think it was a good story. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's what I'm going to go back to, though. Cool. I think I had hyped it up a bit too much in my own head. Mm. I really wanted to see what they were going to do with Atlantis, mainly because I've listened to the song "The Break Can't Help You Now" he's in Geneva like 50 million times, and they constantly mm-hmm. mention, and it comes up in that song. And Baby Benton, I think I had sort of hyped them so much. I'm like, literally at the end of every episode, I'm like, where's Baby Benton? When are they going to Atlantis? Where's <laughs> where is, Baby Benton? When are they going to the fireworks factory? <laughs> like, literally every episode, I'm like, for fuck's sake, just get there. Um, And what we got didn't match what I had in my mind. Yeah. Like I always said, I think the Baby Benton thing, I think they missed a trick by not having mm. the Brig interact with Baby Benton. Um, or like 
the doctor and Joe interacting in any more pronounced way. Because that works better when we have characters we actually know with personalities we know mm-hmm. dealing with them. And for me, Atlantis was actually the weakest part. Like, even, like, Dalios was brilliant, and I think Galea had good moments, but for me, the supporting Atlantean cast, hmm. they came across a bit like someone doing a script read-through of a school play. Do you know? Um, there was some line reads that were good, but overall, it just really fell short. If you compare it to the Romans, hmm. It just doesn't doesn't match up. And unfortunately, that kind of took away from my joy of it. And to be honest, it took them so long to fucking get there. And there was the whole thing with Yates. Yeah. And like a whole 10 minutes of the master messing with Yates. Like, just stop messing with Yates. Just fucking go. Like, why are you waiting? Just, just leave. Like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You barely even know Yates. There's not fucking with his head, you know? Um, And for me, it's like, you know, I think it could have been, it wasn't bad by any stretch, Hmm. but I think it could have been more. I think for a season closer, yeah, we get the fall of Atlantis, but eh, it could have been stronger. Um. One thing I will say, though, is Joe is continuing to rise in my estimation. Yeah. I had watched very little of Joe before we started this watch through. And at the beginning, you'll remember, I wasn't very impressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My estimation of her is continuing to rise. And currently, of the companions we've had so far, mm-hmm. Ian and Barbara, or yeah, Barbara obviously, and Ian. Obviously. Obviously. Joe is... She's up there with them, do you know? Is she top? She's still below Liz. Yeah, Liz I was is still. Say. I, I still have like I will forever love Liz, but like she's in that top five. Do you know? I think she's solidly in that four spot. Who's who? Who is in the five? I obviously we said Ian and Barbara. Uh, Ian and Barbara are one and two. Yeah, you know whatever. Mm-hmm. Depending on my mood, one takes over. Um, Liz is three. Mm-hmm. I did have Vicky in there for a long time because I do actually like Vicky. Mm-hmm. And Jamie. Yeah. And Vicky has now been pushed out and Jamie has been pushed down. So mm-hmm. Jamie was four and Vicky would be five. Mm-hmm. And now Vicky is six, six or whatever. Yeah. And Jamie's dropped to five and Joe's in four. Joe is now four. Yeah. And I, I, think, I, was just, I think I said it during sea devils like that my mm. earlier comments that joe's only brought in as something for the dads is completely com, com, it's it's wrong it was a wrong estimation and again i was just going off my one run through over 10 years ago yeah and like and she was in stories that i absolutely loved and she had moments that i love but coming back and revisiting the character i love her even more or or, or i like or like her even more i i think before this i watched pallet monster or curse. monster pallet on once Mon- no curse curse about him Eh, whatever her peladon story once (laughs) (laughs) and that was really all i'd seen of joe other Mm -hmm. than her appearance in the sarah jane adventures yeah where they kind of play up her ditzy bit Mm -hmm. a bit much because obviously she's older and apparently she got more ditzy with age so i 
not that I had a low opinion of her, but you know, she wasn't. She wouldn't have been in my top five list. You, you you couldn't see where I won't say the hype, you but you couldn't see where like the love for the character was coming. I from. couldn't see why people loved her over Liz. Yeah, I mean, why does Liz Shaw get forgotten, mm-hmm. and Joe is loved so much? I I didn't see it mm-hmm. in the little bit of interaction I had with her. Now watching it this way, I completely understand. And given that we're with her for longer, I understand why people mm-hmm. started to forget about Liz. Yeah, which I think is still ridiculous but i understand where it comes from so going back into what we're talking about now though overall i gave it a three all right it's good i don't think it was great but it's good how about you um yeah like so like all in all i i actually really enjoyed the story i i feel that the first time i watched these stories i probably wasn't in the best place when i was watching them not from personal ways but see i had set myself a goal to watch them by a certain time by a, certain, mm. by a certain date and so I was watching them whatever chance I was getting and sometimes like I would watch them before I would go to work while I was still in bed mm. and like I had been working the night before so I was kind of tired so I probably my appreciation of stories for a lot of the ones that we've gone back and I've come back with, with a different lens mm. i.e. like some Eva the Daleks uh censored stuff like that I'm watching them in a much better frame of mind now so my appreciation for them has gone up Hmm. and here i thought there was some great performances from our regular cast and the majority of our supporting cast uh another contender f- for me anyway it was another contender for joe's high points in her rambling uh based hmm. on like her based on her like you know, no obviously look it's there's gonna be ones coming up there a bit that would probably oust it but i hmm. think it's probably for me at the moment it's probably that number three spot behind sea devils being one and mind of evil being or sorry sea devils being Two, a curse of Peladon being number one, yeah. But um, because I quite enjoyed the mind of evil. Ooh, this is gonna be a tough one, I think. <laughs> um, but great performance from Joe. Really loved it. Uh, great showing from Benton, which I always love. Mm-hmm. Beautiful dialogue from the Doctor, and him mm-hmm. being the parts of the Doctor that I really like to watch. Um, however, things I didn't that didn't come across so well were Yates being incompetent, uh, the Brig being a bit of a prick which may or may not be stress related and that not just to root but like some of his interactions with the doctor and with benton to an extent like were kind of annoying mm. um chronos form number one like chronos form number two is great really mm. enjoyed it but chronos form number one is just uh, i i feel like they they just they they lost sight of what they were trying to get across and yeah. I completely agree with Robert uh, Robert Sloan that it was, you know, uh, unfortunate. I would, if they had gotten rid of, if they had taken the Yates equation out of things, then I think they could have done a three and three split where three episodes mm. were set in Atlantis. Because I do think one more episode of Atlantis would have cemented a lot of what was going on. Like, why did Hippias, after the first time we see him, become such a fucking douchebag and try to yeah. cause a coup? Um... Yeah, like Atlantis just felt kind of rushed for me. Yeah, and like I mentioned that I'd get to why I the impact of oh, Dallas's Dallas death, death, and I never actually mentioned it. Yeah, it's because the Atlantis part just felt so tacked on, weak. Yeah, and tacked on. It's like we never really saw him interact with Galia, mm-hmm. so why do I care? Yeah, do you know? 
I feel bad for that character himself, but mm-hmm. his line of, you know, my dear Galia or whatever, why should that have made me more emotional? It, it didn't. I th- I think like when you see Galea's reaction to his death and then you go back and you see that scene again. Yeah. I think it, but if you watch it for the first time, it, it is just an old man dying. Whereas yeah. you see Galea's reaction and then you think back to his death. It's like, all right, there's a bit more to it there. Yeah. Um, but I had this at a four at one point, but then as it went on, I just realized that the eighth section really annoys me. And it really takes away from the development of, because one thing that I had in my head coming into this was that the doctor previously mentioned being there for the destruction of Atlantis mm. in, in one of his stories. I think this is like the third iteration we've gotten on how Atlantis was destroyed. Because I think Azal mentions it as well. Actually, yeah, sorry, that was it. No, that was the demons. It mm. was like Azal said that he was present at the destruction of Atlantis. Yeah. So it it's kind of strange you know um mm. because like that that i feel like you know we've seen callbacks before like so why couldn't that been a callback you know mm. um but and again because azal or azal and his people have been impersonating earth-based or inspir- inspiring earth-based deities much like chronos and some of the chronovores have so mm. i think there would be something that's kind of cool there but yeah i had this at a four but i dropped it down to I've dropped it down to a three point seven five, okay. because I didn't I did enjoy it. I probably would go back and watch it again. And I would just skip through the parts that pissed me off. As it was, I'd like to just you know look up on YouTube the clips of Baby Benton. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that's it. Um, so that brings our score. so so maybe just explain for our listeners again what is the third season curse so the, the third season curse is something that we've noticed is that with each doctor's third season no obviously William Hartle Hurley had three seasons of Dr. Patrick Troughton we have scored the third season of those doctors as the weakest of their run hmm. so obviously John Pertwee runs for a small bit longer but yeah. we wanted to see would his third season suffer the same scoring faith as it were Okay, so let's have a look. I said the word fate wrong. Damn it. Yes, you did. You actually did the TH in the word that didn't need it. Mother. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Christ, this is an explicit rating. (laughs) Okay. So you said rating. I heard something else. Um, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) So for season seven, Mm -hmm. your average was 4.63. And so was mine. Yeah. Because Liz Shaw is amazeballs. Mm-hmm. For season 8, your average was 3.65. Mine was 3.25. For season 9, your average is 3.3. And mine is 2.95. The curse held true. Unfortunately. Yeah. Because again, I don't think... I'm just going back over them there now. Yeah. No season... No season 3 ending has broken a 3.5 no and like it's same because like we had like a great story with the curse of peladon and we were like oh brilliant and then the ending of the sea devils pissed us off on an otherwise good story the ending pissed us off mm. the mutants we bored with they the daleks i you know, it's kind of strange right that isn't this yeah it's the same 
This is the same director as Day of the Daleks, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if people told him to like, you know, just cop the fuck out and get get out of his own head because his direct we kind of agreed that his direction for Day of the Daleks really hampered it. Well, but the problem with his direction for the Day of the Daleks was he was too far out of his own head. Do you know, he was like, just read the line and move on. Hmm. Um, which is a bit too far out of your own head in my <laughs> mind, you know. Or like, possibly. Maybe he was so far up his own ass that he'd come all the way out through the other side again. Who knows? Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> but, yes. we still have two more seasons of John to go. Yes, we do. And we're starting, next week, we're starting season 10 with a monumental event in the show's history. Yes. We will have not one doctor, not two doctors, but three, three doctors. doctors. Yes. So I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to seeing William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton coming back and seeing how all three of them work together. It's going to be so good. Uh, I've been I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. I think like <laughs> I, no, because like I think once we had gotten past the Sea Devils, I was like, mm. okay, ten doctors. I know there's two more fucking stories. <laughs> 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 yeah, ten doctors. Yeah, because like this is yeah, like it's the ten year anniversary of the show. And we're we're getting something that, like I think for a lot of people, like no fucking this is bleeding into next week's story. A lot of people that they thought they would never actually happen, especially with the fact that William Hartnell had to retire because of his ill health. Yeah. So the fact that we got this is amazing. Yeah, and it started such an amazing. And again, we're going to get this next week, but I think it started such an amazing tradition mm-hmm. of multi doctor stories. Yeah. That are such. They're such a fan favorite. It's such a high to see them coming back and interacting. Next yeah. week, next week should be interesting. Yeah. If nothing else, next week will definitely be an interesting discussion. Absolutely, in a fun way. And we're only two, we're only two years out from the sixtieth, so I'm hoping mm. for another multi. Fucking better be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, guys, we will talk to you next week. Cool. Bye. Bye. Bye.